Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the big dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined today by Steve. Ahoy hoy. And Jonathan. Howdy there. Hello, fellas. Great to have you both here. Howdy. We are here to discuss a 1989 movie directed by Richard Greenberg called Little Monsters. Little Monsters. Steve, I grew up on Little Monsters. I This movie is near and dear to my heart. At least it was until right. I rewatched it. <laughs> this will be an interesting discussion. Yeah. But the thing that strikes me about this movie is how, like, I just found this at a rental store. So, you know, what's funny is that is how the majority of people found it. That actually ended up, for reasons I will talk about momentarily, being the way the majority of people got exposed to this film for the first time. That's how I found out about it. My parents had a store and Two Doors Down was an independent video shop. And the guy, I would be able to go over there and the guy would just let me rent whatever the fuck I want. So... And then I'm sure he like, you know, gave the bill to my parents at the end of the <laughs> month or whatever. But um, I mean, that's how I got introduced to Little Monsters, Suburban Commando, Child's Play, you know, lots like whatever I wanted. Dude, even if it was rated R, he would let my fucking six year old ass rent whatever I wanted. That's whatever. A, I'm going to derail it just for a second because that. Yes, 100% yes, 100% that. That is a part of the experience kids are going to miss out on now and have been missing out on for years already. I guess I sound like an old man as usual, but like there was a shop. It's true though. It is. There was a shopping center a block or so around the corner from the house I mostly grew up in, close enough I could ride my bike. I got lucky. There were two rental stores in there. One was a chain, a warehouse video, and they had all the big stuff. But the second one was this tiny little one called Video by the Oak. It was hidden in a corner. It's exactly like what you're describing. And they had all the foreign stuff, the art house stuff, the weird 80s horror, the sci-fi. And the clerks there, even when I was 8, 10 years old, would, would help me find all sorts of stuff. I saw animes that I'd never heard of before the, for the first time because of them. I saw the Garbage Pail Kids movie because of them. Oh, no. You know, right? Yeah, that's always <laughs> one of the less ex- best experiences. But I may have found this them at them as well. Absolutely. And, like, w- w- the streaming's awesome, but, like, there's so much of it. Kids aren't going to go walking around through the streaming aisles browsing at what's there and finding that stuff. Like, we got that. And- yeah, there there's nothing like walking up and down the aisles from – bottom to top to find the right movie and then walking up to the counter and then going, Oh shit, I need my snacks to go with this. Buying a bag of M&Ms and microwave popcorn and a warm Coke, you know, (laughs) and uh, going back home and watching this. Absolutely. The warm Coke is a hundred percent. Also part of the experience too, is that you're stuck with what you rent. Yes. So if it was a movie or even a game, right? You had to watch it. You had to play it. Like nowadays, the streaming options are too broad, too vast. You just turn it off and watch something else. Don't get me wrong. I love the convenience. Everyone does. It's great. But when you're a kid and you're like forced to watch this movie all the way through, you could either develop an appreciation for it or like I think in the case of us, an appreciation for film or like a a knack for film criticism that just comes with like the territory because you used to rent movies every weekend and watch them all the way through. Oh God, yeah. You started to understand film structure, I think. I think it was slightly educational. It was. 
It was. If you were really the kind of kid that was going to sit there and watch the movie actively, absolutely it was. And my brother and I were just talking about that maybe two weeks ago via text. Do you remember all the times we rented something we didn't know and it turned out to be awesome, but also all the times we rented something we didn't know and it turned out to be horrible and we had to sit through two hours of something we didn't really want to watch? (laughs) I'll tell you how neurotic I was as a kid. Like, I couldn't decide to pick something new that I've never seen based on the cover or something that... I would already watch religiously and rent all the time. So whenever I went to a video store, I was like torn. Most cases, I would only get to pick one thing, right? Yeah. So if it was two, it would be easy. Something I know and love, something new. But if it was one, trying to decide was a fucking very tough thing for me. My parents would often let my brother and I get two between us, but that meant one pick each. So I didn't get to choose both of them, you know? Like, uh. There was a movie that I picked as a kid that like, I almost forgot was real later in life. And I thought this was going to be the greatest movie I've ever seen. And I couldn't believe that I had never heard of it. And I just saw it sitting at a local video store. It was called Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue. Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue is the powerful story of a teenager dealing with drug and alcohol abuse. And some of your favorite cartoon characters will help you understand how drugs and alcohol can ruin your life. So watch the program. Talk about it with your family. And make the right decision. Stay away from drugs and alcohol. Do you guys remember Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue? I I distinctly remember the name. I'm having trouble recalling the content. So it was like a ton of different cartoons all in one yeah, I was going to say it was like a compilation cartoon movie thing. Yeah. But like it had like the Ninja Turtles interacting with fucking Inspector Gadget oh. or whoever. There was a bunch of different cartoon characters that are never connected and they right. were all in one thing. Uh-huh. I, okay, yeah. I had this. You I had it. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. I remember the cover of it. I remember being aware of it. It's not something I think I've really watched. I'm yeah. pretty sure it was just a drug PSA. <laughs> right? Seriously. That's why it was made. <laughs> That's how these studios made the agreement, probably. Like, this will be educational and good for the kids. Okay, we'll allow it. You remember the sewer sharks? Street sharks. Street sharks. So apparently you do. Yeah, I got reminded of those uh, a couple of weeks ago by somebody, friend, and that was one of those experiences for me that, like, I it's all these cartoons and movies and shit that I, I just forget even existed, you know, until someone reminds me, like, oh my god, it was a thing. Well, much like in this movie, like, something catches the public attention, and then it gets, like, spin, not spin-offs, but, like, rip-offs. Yeah. So, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was very successful and had a very interesting name and an interesting concept. So, of course, there was Biker Mice from Mars. Oh, yeah, I remember them, yeah. <laughs> and there was Street Sharks. There and- was uh, Samurai Pizza Cats. Yeah, exactly, yeah. see? <laughs> now, now I'm just getting absurd here. But yes, these things existed, some of which I liked at the time. I loved Samurai Pizza Cats when I was a little kid. I, I tried to watch a few minutes of a couple episodes about a year ago, and I'm, I can't really sit through it anymore. But the little kid in me really, really enjoyed that. <laughs> Before we go too off the rails, I do want to say that Little Monsters is a listener request by a longtime listener, by probably our most hardcore fan, debatably. It's your mom, right? 
<laughs> that was the, either the softest mom joke in the history of the world. For oh, I'm sorry, that was perfect. Uh, yes, it, yes, it is. Uh, Shout out to Corey's mom. No, this is from Iceman Chris. Okay, so it we've done a request for him before, haven't we? We were gonna do only the strong, and then we were like. Oh, maybe not. Let's do something else. <laughs> oh, well, then thank you. I don't remember who we did another request for, but I, there's certain movies like this one that are, and, and this is not a knock at Corey, but there's certain movies like this one that I really want to do that are kind of hard for me to sell, and then someone requests them, and I get to do them. <laughs> and this was one of them, so thank you, because I really did want to get a chance to rewatch this. <laughs> yeah. Special, special thank you to Iceman Chris. You are cool. But I, I don't know. I was thinking about monsters when I was a kid and like the idea of them. And I wasn't quite like uh, Ben Savage in this movie, but maybe I'll toss to you, Jonathan. Do you, do you remember the the idea of being a little kid and like being afraid of monsters, or do you have any stories to tell on that topic? I I was never really like a monster under the bed kind of guy. Never really, or monsters in the closet or anything like that. But first off, quick shout out to Iceman Chris, House Maverick and Goose, buddy. Um, <laughs> Anyways, Goose is dead, sir. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of rhetorical. <laughs> Anyways, so I, I was never really into monsters or ghosts or anything like that. But there was this one instance where I was probably third grade, second grade, maybe. And I remember going to bed and it was a like a lightning rainstorm kind of night which we didn't really get very often in sunny southern california so it's already spooky so it's already a little bit i i never really had a problem with rain and lightning anyways but okay so i remember at one point waking up like in the middle of the night and there's lightning and thunder going off and i see a lightning flash and i see through my blinds this shape of a figure that was like similar to like the shape of like E.T., like an alien, something, some kind of a monster like that. And it freaked me the fuck out. <laughs> and that is the only time that I've ever had like a monster scare as a kid. Even to this day, like I could go to a haunted house or something and, you know, you see monsters and like people get so dramatic about them and i look at them like okay like you're fucking maybe it was an et maybe it was maybe it was a real et (laughs) (laughs) so is that your only supernatural experience (laughs) have you ever seen a ufo nah nah that's probably my one and only i mean i've definitely like encountered people that i thought for sure are are not humans like Men in black status, yeah. you know, like, like, that's uh, the worst disguise I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's three things that I think of with this movie. One is monsters. The second thing is the one of years. And the third thing is boy meets world. Yeah. For obvious reasons. Right. right. Steve? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Were you more of a fan of boy meets world or wonder years? Would you say? Definitely wonder years. I mean, a boy meets world was one of those shows that, I don't know what was wrong with me, sincerely. Like, there were a whole bunch of these shows during the time we were, roughly, we were growing up that, like, everyone my age was interested in, and I was just like, ah, no. No, I, I, like, I, I'm not saying it was bad. I'm not saying it was a bad show or there's anything wrong with it. It's just, like, I didn't hold my interest. Couldn't watch it. 
The yeah. only real compelling factor was Topanga, obviously, which is, <laughs> I mean, look, if you were a heterosexual boy of roughly the same age as the cast of that show at the time it was on, you liked Topanga. Mm-hmm. That was just a rule. Any any guy who was between the ages of like 11 and 15 at that point who says they weren't into Topanga is lying. So that there was that. But Wonder, Wonder Years was definitely closer for me, even though I think it was weird because I couldn't connect to growing up during the 70s. I was born in 83. I had no idea what it was like to be a kid in the 70s. But my it, there was a lot of overlap, I think, with like my parents' family experiences. So I guess that that made it easier for me to connect to. So, Jonathan, Winnie Cooper or Topanga? Oh, Topanga for sure. Winnie Cooper is just so like... I don't know, man. She's like a fucking two by four, you know, like she's just a piece of wood leaning up against the fence, man. Like Party I with the panga married to, to the other one. Absolutely. I love Winnie. Why are you talking to Winnie me about too. Winnie? Ah, not, not into her. Winnie's all. intelligent, responsible. <laughs> she's the one you want to really spend your time with later on. <laughs> intelligent and responsible. <laughs> nope. Nope. She's I'll also take, very pretty. I'll take the bimbo. <laughs> um, <laughs> man. Hey. So, I, all right. So funny story about Topanga. So I remember as a kid, well, first of all, Boy Meets World, I, I didn't get to watch a lot of it because for some weird reason, I remember locally that like it, it got switched over to the Disney channel or something and you had to pay extra to have the Disney channel. And so we didn't have that all the time. And then I ended up watching it a little bit later when Disney channel was just like part of the cable package at that yeah, point. Yeah, That's right. There was some some switches that occurred in the Michael Eisner era. Like it was a premium channel and then they bought ABC and then they kind of like made it a part of ABC later. I know exactly what you mean though. Go on. Yeah. And and it probably had to do with the cable company in our area at the time too. We went through this weird period of like (laughs) five or six different cable providers all in like a 10 year period in sunny Oxnard, California. (laughs) Anyways, I don't remember who it was that told me this, but I remember being a little kid and I was watching Boy Meets World and this guy told me, he goes, you like Topanga? And I said, yeah, yeah. You know, she's like smoking hot. You know, he goes, look at her fingers. She's got fat fingers. And I'm like, what? What? So, so, so we're looking at it. I see that she's got pretty thick fingers for a girl who's like, you know, very thin figured and, and, and he goes, she's going to be a fat bitch when she gets older because she's got thick fingers. Good and God. I'm like, what the hell? What the fuck? And for some weird reason, my whole life, like that stuck with me. And like anytime I see like a thin girl with thick fingers, like that pops in. But my I don't head. think it. What's her actual name? Is it Danielle something? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think she ever no, did she get never, big. But, no, no. But I'm just it's just a weird one of those things that stick with you like your whole life. <laughs> right. Oh, my oh, God. You can yeah. always ex- count on you, Jonathan, to bring the crassness to the podcast. Isn't and I it terrible, it. though? Oh. I'm not that I believe in it. It's just it's just one of those things that stuck with me since I was a kid. You know, the, weird. But the, what the problem was, though, for me is around the same time. All right. I'm going to demand while we're being recorded that at some point we do the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, the J.J. Abrams movie. And people who don't know it may roll their eyes, but it is nothing like the show. I think this may be a big trouble in Little China situation where you appreciate it once you've actually seen it. It's actually rather funny, but 
Christy Swanson. I discovered Christy Swanson about the same time as that movie came out somewhere between 91 and 93 and holy fucking shit. So that just became my whole world for a yeah. while. <laughs> I think it's funny how we always revert to talking about our childhood crushes. Like yeah. we never fully let them go. Right. No, <laughs> never, ever, ever. If Christy Swanson from 1993 showed up at my apartment right now, I'd be like, I will do whatever you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh. So, Steve, Little Monsters, little can you monsters. tell me how the hell was this movie made? <laughs> All right. Um, excuse me. There's a, it's a it's a little it's a little shadowy. This is one of those cases where not a lot of detail available and a little bit of little bit of uh, contradictory information from different people. There is a Blu-ray with a commentary that I listened to. The commentary on this Blu-ray was done by a guy named Jarrett Gahan who had absolutely nothing to do with this this movie. But he's what? yeah, he's involved. He's one of the head like editors and curators for a really big website that's hyper focused on like horror, sci-fi and other genre films. He's made some documentary stuff that like like medium scale. He's written for a lot of different magazines and publications and he's apparently like a mega fan of this movie and someone associated with the production of the film recommended him to do the commentary track for this Blu-ray when I guess they, they were looking for somebody. The man who directed the film, who I'll mention in a minute, has sadly passed away about three years ago. But, uh, so anyway, this is all to say that, like, I, some of this information, and I'll, I'll put the asterisks there, came from him, but I'm not necessarily sure where he came by all of it, and there's a little bit of a uh, contradiction. In any case... The movie was uh, written collaboratively by these two guys, Terry Rossio and Ted Elliott. The two of them met in a high school journalism class decades ago and began collaborating. This ended up being the first screenplay that the two of them sold. There's this producer named Andrew Licht. He and a guy named Jeff Miller met while they were in college and became producing partners. They started operating a production company out of Andrew Licht's apartment and they, they were brand new, so they advertised themselves to writers basically as being the agent or the, the, yeah, the agency that would read anything. We're not William Morris. We're not CAA. If you send us a script, we'll read it. We'll actually look at it. So these two writers, Terry Rossio and Ted Elliott, wrote a totally different idea and sent the screenplay to Andrew Licht and his partner, and they liked it. And they had the group of them had meetings and they ended up deciding they couldn't make that movie because they couldn't find a way to develop it that everyone liked. But Andrew Licht, in an interview for the Blu-ray supplements, says that he the two of these writers, Rocio and Elliot, submitted eight other scripts to them. And this ended up being one of them. And they liked it enough that they shopped it around and they sold the script to this to a company that no longer exists called Vestron Pictures. They worked on a bunch of additional drafts and, and, and really tried to flush some of it out. But uh, it ended up kind of becoming its own thing during production. Uh, there's, there's some contradictory information about how involved the writers were. Gahan in his commentary track claims that they did an additional draft for Vestron and then had to leave the production because of a writer's strike. I, I don't know if that's true, but the studio eventually went on with production of the movie without them um, in the years since the two of them col collaboratively wrote both the live action and animated versions of Aladdin for Disney they co-wrote Godzilla 98 
Small Soldiers, both of the Antonio Banderas Zorro movies, the first National Treasure, the first Shrek, and most, if not all, of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Rocio, on his own, also wrote Men in Black and Kong vs. Godzilla, which I think is pretty funny. Um, in any case... What a portfolio. Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? They went shopping around for a director and um, picked a guy named Brad Bird. Who, Ooh. Yeah. He's a big name. He is a big name, and he did not last... Vestron was in the process of going bankrupt at the time they were producing this film, and this project got sold to MGM UA. They did not want Bird to direct it. They wanted somebody who had more experience with makeup and effects work, and they ended up deciding on a guy named Richard Allen Greenberg, who died back in 18. Greenberg directed nothing other than this. This is the only film he directed. He was primarily a designer of special effects and titles for feature films. He designed the titles for the Flash Gordon feature film from the early 80s, a movie called Altered States, Hudson Hawk, um, Death Becomes Her, the Richie Rich movie with Macaulay Culkin, Executive Decision, a Keanu Reeves movie called Devil's Advocate. He did the, the titles for Star Trek Nemesis and a few others. He also did some effects work, including for Last Action Hero and for this. Um, he, he did do some of the special effects work for this. And he also did some effects work for Predator, for which he uh, was nominated for an Academy Award. In any case, uh, they ended up bringing Greenberg on, um, and the studio continued to sort of evolve the script as, uh, as things went on. It got a little bit darker. It got a little bit cheekier. Uh, as far as casting is concerned... In, in Jarrett Cahan's commentary on the Blu-ray, he claims that the studio auditioned um, Macaulay Culkin and his brother Kieran for the lead parts. According to, to the producer, Andrew Licht, that's not the way things went down. He says that they wanted Fred Savage pretty much from day one and that it was actually kind of a surprise that they got him because Wonder Years was in its second season at that point. Savage had already been in Princess Bride um, he was being chased for other movies, and production of this ended up overlapping with a real special little movie called Wizard. Which the came, Wizard. The Wizard, Show yeah. Show it some respect. Right, which came out just a few months after this, so they were kind of surprised they got him because he was being booked for a lot of other work at the time. My favorite Nintendo commercial of all time is the movie <laughs> The Wizard. Right? It's the best um, motion picture commercial ever made, just ahead of that McDonald's commercial we call Mac and Me. <laughs> um, and the Nike commercial we call Space Jam. Um, but uh, Andrew Lick did say, though, that when they were casting for the younger brother, they saw a bunch of actors. They picked one actor in particular who they really, really liked, who they thought was going to be perfect for the part. And then he decided, Lick decided at the last minute he didn't want to use this kid because he and Savage didn't look enough like each other to be sellable as brothers. And it turns out the kid they almost used was actually Macaulay Culkin, according to Andrew Licht. So they did almost cast him in the movie. And Fred Savage's parents, I think his father at least, if not both of them, were basically acting as his, his agents when he was a kid. And I'm pretty sure one of them was like, hey, you know, we've got this other kid who looks just like Fred. But in any case, they, they, they liked Ben Savage and they ended up just making him the younger brother, which works. The two of them do look basically identical. <laughs> one's a curly-headed little fuck and the other one's got straight. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, 
This was Fred Savage's fifth film. Um, I was talking, it came out just months before uh, Wizard. It was same time as the second season of Wonder Years. Funnily enough, his father in this movie, Daniel Stern, provides the voiceover for the adult version of his character in the Wonder Years. Savage did a, a, some other acting, went on to a directing career. His biggest debut was, as a feature film director was unfortunately the movie Daddy Day Camp. But mm. but he has uh, he has directed some episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is which is fun. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, so one other thing I want to make mention of because it, it, we're going to come back to this. At least I am. The primary special effects for the designer the designer that they found for this film is a guy named Robert Short. Robert Short oversaw the design of all the monsters and the way that the prosthetics and the makeup for them were, was going to work. He's done a bunch of other movies, but one of his biggest credits from not too long before this was Tim Burton's Beetlejuice. And um, the comparisons aesthetically and tonally between this and Beetlejuice are rampant everywhere. Unmistakable. Yeah, unmistakable. Like, and we'll, I'll go, I'll touch back on it. You guys may as well. But like, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Beetlejuice for kids in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Oh, oh so last thing I'm going to mention is because you, you were talking about it yourself. The home video point. That was the last thing I wanted to mention because you guys have both brought it up. So MGM UA bought this production from Vestron when Vestron was going bankrupt and they produced it and they came up with an ad campaign. But even though Fred Savage was super popular at the time, the studio just did not feel like being bothered to promote this fucking movie. They just didn't care. It was like money they'd spent, we'll get it back, maybe, who cares? They only ran the movie on 171 screens in the entire country, which even in 89 was minuscule. It would normally been something like eight or 900. The advertising campaign for it was minuscule and almost nobody noticed. The, the movie went totally unnoticed in theaters and and made some money but not much and then it went to home video and kids started noticing the posters and the VHS covers in the video stores and watching it and it became a cult hit on home video and has remained that way ever since so the the, the majority of the audience for this movie since it came out is really people that that found it on home video I don't, I don't know how they figured out it was there a note I don't know who noticed it but my mother and my grandmother took me to see this at a theater in the Beverly Center in West L.A. in 89 when it came out. I think it may have been the only theater in L.A. that was playing it. Like, yeah. So, I mean, I, I saw it in a theater by instance. I think it was one of those instances where my mom noticed it in the calendar section. was like, oh, Stephen would like this. I'll go see if his grandmother wants to go with us. You know, but but yeah, I think pretty much everyone else is like, I saw this for the first time on, on home video. <laughs> I know that was the case for me, definitely. Right. By the way, that note about checking the newspaper for movie shows times. Like I used to do that all the time. We would get the Sunday yes. paper and would look through there and go directly to show times and see what was playing. <laughs> and we had a theater here in the, uh, what was called the Esplanade at the time. And on Sundays you could catch a double feature matinee for $2 wow. and the kids pack of like popcorn and candy and a soda was like, four dollars or something so you could literally go with like ten dollars and get two sets of snacks and two movies so like i remember being a kid my, my and it was only on sundays and my parents would drop me off with my sister or a friend and we would just 
be at the movie theater like all fucking day. Hell yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I awesome. love those days. Yeah. Man, I loved that mall as a kid. The Big aqu- time. Right? There, there were a couple of similar ones in the San Fernando Valley, but there's one in particular. There's, there's still a shopping center there, but it's not the same shopping center on Fallbrook and Canoga Park. And at one point in the 90s, that mall had a seven-screen movie theater, a full-tilt arcade, a QZAR laser tag with additional arcades, arcade games in it, a comic book store, yes. a food court. And and it was like, yeah, it was the same thing for me. I Friends of mine and I could get dropped off there at like 9 in the morning as 10 or 11-year-olds, and we would just be there all day. Is that, is that where the Home Depot is now? Yes. I know yeah. exactly where that yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, the, most of the original buildings have been demolished, but that is absolutely, that's the same property. Yeah. <laughs> if a mall had a comic shop and an arcade when you were a kid, yeah. that place was the fucking shit. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, we could play arcade games in the laser tag before we played laser tag. Then we could go play more arcade games in the arcade and see a movie and eat in the food court and go mill around in the comic book store. All in one day. I mean, that's like if you're 12 and you can't drive, at least for me and my group of friends. But that was that was fantastic. Hell yes. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Well, thank you very much, Steve. We are going to dive into the movie Little Monsters. Jonathan, <laughs> maybe you can take us through it. Jonathan, did your little monsters watch this movie with you? No. Oh, okay. I was only asking because, again, it seems as last. I'm kind of curious to see what kids had thought of it, but... Honestly, after watching this movie, like I wouldn't want my kids to watch it. (laughs) But um, okay, first of all, I I have a big problem with movies that have the intro where the camera pans in and the camera is so fucking shaky that like it makes me nauseous. And I brought this up when we potted on the Santa Claus. They do this long scene where the camera is just so unstable and it's like how how do you not have like a smooth glide for this camera as you're filming whatever you're doing like this is a full production movie like how is there this much camera shake it makes me so upset i mean and to your point professional steady cam rigs which are meant to avoid that for when you're hand holding the camera have been around since like the 40s so it's yeah it wouldn't yeah. have been a new yeah <laughs> yeah it's an artistic choice. Yeah, really. I guess so. It's real weird, too. I mean, the, the, the steady cam rig's a pain in the ass for the camera operator to wear, but that's what he fucking gets paid for, so... Or they could have a track, <laughs> I mean... Yeah, they could also do it on a track. It's just a little bit marginally more expensive and time-consuming, but absolutely it works. Yeah. All right, well, now that I got that off my chest... Yeah. So, they, they start with this scene where Fred Savage has this thing where he likes to narrate himself, apparently... We moved here about a month ago. My parents said it'd be better for me and my brother Eric. They always say that when they want something. Everything was different. All the streets had different names. All my friends were far away. I was miserable. I hated it. Till I met my first friend, Maurice. I'll never, ever have a friend like him again. Um, He's tired of Daniel Stern doing it for him, (laughs) goddammit. Yeah, right. (laughs) The older version of me slash my dad. Yeah. I'm sick of him narrating for me. (laughs) Right. And it starts out in black and white with this moving truck. So you're like, okay, is this kid 
coming or going. I don't know. And then it transitions into color and it's like, well, I don't understand the context of that. Like why, why would you start out in black and white and in 30 seconds transition into color? This movie uh, tries to, I think, implement some large tonal shifts throughout the course of the film, two or three at least anyway. But this movie does start off like a suburban family, you know, going through what white America goes through. You know, you got bullies, you got your sibling rivalry, your parents are fighting. And that's not what the movie is about, but that's what it establishes as being about. And then later on, there's like a very stark shift in what this movie is in the tone. Right. But I mean, that's definitely... Whether or not it worked, it's definitely intentional, right? Because the first third, the first act really is mostly setting up that that is that that normal suburban life is his life, and then the, the departure in the second act is now I'm in Monster World and that normal life is behind me. Yes, you know. <laughs> okay, goddammit, but this is 1989. Why are we transitioning from black and white into color in the first 30 seconds of the movie? No, I agree with it you about that. It doesn't make any sense. They, that Very opening Wizard thir- of Oz. That opening 30 <laughs> yeah. seconds is really supposed to be like, oh, you know, this previous life that I'm leaving behind, these black and white sepia-toned memories. But I agree with you. It's like, no, it's 30 seconds of, he's a kid who moved. Like, just tell me you moved. <laughs> The new kid in town story, you know, something yeah. formulaic in a story, but also for me, always has been relatable in a movie. The it's new kid true. in town, because I was always the motherfucking new kid in town. I moved like three times. Absolutely. <laughs> I went to 10 schools when I was a kid, Steve. 12 years, 10 schools. God damn, dude. It's amazing uh, <laughs> you, you met Jonathan or anyone else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so after all of that bullshit gets uh, set aside... We get introduced to Fred Savage, who is totally savage. <laughs> totally savage. He's the most savage man in the movie. No, it's, it's Brian. So, so Brian apparently is one of those like typical '80s kids that can build anything out of anything, like a MacGyver, right? And so this kid, instead of like hearing his alarm clock go off and you know bang the little hammer every morning. He rigged up a traffic stoplight to his alarm clock so that it flashes and wakes him up in the morning. Like, okay, first of all, no alarm clock is going to give him the the right electrical conversion for powering that oh, light, shit. right? God damn we it. We got an electrician on the podcast. <laughs> every, this has kind of become a thing. Like every episode I've been on, we've been like talking, talking about, about some sort of electrical implausibility. <laughs> <Yes. here. laughs> and so this kid just is one of those that just, you know, makes toothpicks and bubble gums and uh, puts it in there. And now he's got fancy fucking lights in his room with his alarm clock. It's just, Ridiculous shit, stupid the, shit. But as a kid, you find it like, wow, that's so cool, oh, man. God, that's yeah. amazing. I I wish that's I could do is, that. Yeah. yeah. The 80s films, especially for kids and teens, are full of this like gadget building and machineries and Rube Goldbergs and Pee Wee's egg machine. And, you know, just like lots of lots of gadgets. Kids rooms full of stuff. There's no way a kid's parents would let them have. And hey, where did my 12 year old get the streetlight? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's some cars out there crashing right now because they're missing a streetlight. Kid comes home dragging stop signs behind him. You might want to consult the psychologist. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the, the only family that ki- that wouldn't question that is the Adams family, right? Exactly. They're yeah, like, hey, go. good job, Pugsley. Right. <laughs> I killed a man and I took it off his body. That would be like the Pugsley. Right. Uh, but 
you know, it, it's kind of a normal household, but some yeah. things are not quite right. Like like his choice of food, man. What the fuck? Dude, this kid gets up in the middle of the night to make a peanut butter and onion sandwich. Like, who the fuck is this kid? He's what a are sick they, fuck. Dude, what do they eat kid. in Chicago, man? Like, I, gross. I don't know why they made a point of noting this, but I learned in the bonus material that the script, it was a bologna and onion sandwich. And for some reason, I think Fred Savage was the one who decided to make it peanut butter and onion on the set. Wow, this kid is uh he's got some real script control, huh? He's yeah, like, yeah. I'm doing rewrites on set. <laughs> right? Yeah, there's bologna, it's peanut butter now. Deal yeah. with it. <laughs> Fred's sitting there like, it'll be great. All the kids are gonna love it. Love They're gonna it. think it's so funny if I do peanut butter. <laughs> peanut butter and onion, absolutely. Fucking uh, weirdo. Yeah, your kid's a sociopath though. <laughs> but Corey Matthews, his little brother, Eric. Corey Matthews. He's Ben Savage. Uh, he sees a monster. At least, you know, he does what a kid would do and says he saw a monster. He's little. He's littler than Fred Savage. He's the yeah. little brother. He tells the parents, but, you know, they don't see any monster. But the next day, there's quite a few things that are out of place. Like, there's some, like, pranks that have been set up, right? <laughs> and the one that I remember that, like, has stuck with me for a long time is when the dad opens a cupboard and then melted ice cream falls out and falls onto his lap. He's yeah. wearing his suit. He's on his way to work. Right. And then the camera, it shows the mess from the bottom <laughs> up. The camera tilts up from like the crotch level up to his head. Like a kid looking up at his father, yeah. Exactly. And he says, You're dead, mister. Hey, I didn't do anything. <laughs> mister, absolutely. <laughs> well, there's that line later on where he says like nothing, Maurice says nothing over three foot, uh, three foot nine, right? Something like that when they're just for perspective purposes. Right. Like anything over three foot nine, it wouldn't be a kid's like point of view. (laughs) Right. So that's Daniel Stearns is a tall guy, man. That, that crotch is right there about three foot nine. (laughs) Oh Oh, man. And and the other thing was when, when Fred Savage made that sandwich and he went back to his room and like turned on the TV, why was he watching that like sleazeball pimp car salesman, and a girl in a bikini, like, talking about how to get chicks. Hi. My name's Sam Yehey, and welcome to Channel 98 Cable Access, all about chicks. Today, my guest is uh, Lovey. Lovey. And- oh, sorry, Lonnie, right. So, uh, Lonnie, tell me, where are you from? I'm from Fort Lauderdale, but I'm dying to go to L.A. Yeah, right. So, uh, Lonnie... I, I didn't understand that like at it all. It was like us as a kid when Jonathan, you remember this because we used to talk about this. It was like when we used to watch the Howard Stern show. Yeah. I think that was the equivalent. Like he was watching yeah. some kind of like adult sexual, you know, sexually charged show that was not for kids. Yeah, that was so and the, funny. They mentioned the bonus material. The script said he was up watching Letterman, but they decided to shift it on the set partly because they couldn't get the rights to show Letterman in the movie, but. They wanted more of an implication that, that Brian was up at night watching grown-up stuff that wasn't really appropriate for him. And rather than pay to license something real, they just came up with something schlocky and stupid that looked like it would be on late at night. There was, oh, what was his name? There's Wally, Wally George. I think he's what he called him. Do you guys know the actress Rebecca De Mornay? Remember her? No. no. All right, well, she was real popular in the late 80s and early 90s. And anyway, long story short, her father did what was basically a public access level late night talk show for decades. And it was famous for the audience throwing stuff at 
at the the participants who were being interviewed. And over the years, it's like a reverse Gallagher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They would throw oranges and stuff at, at people they didn't like when the interviews weren't going well. And he, he would just ask them all these crazy inflammatory things. But it's really weird because over the years, he landed a lot of really huge acts like just before they got famous. And he pulled a lot. I don't, I don't know if they filmed in Orange County or what, but they pulled a lot of acts that started in Orange County. For instance, Gwen Stefani in the original No Doubt lineup were on the show as interviewees like like five years before they blew up or something like that. And nobody knew who they were anyway. But yeah, that was a real thing. He'd have all kinds of crazy, stupid shit on his show. It, was, it lasted for years. <laughs> So things aren't really going well for Brian here. He's getting blamed for a lot of things that he did not do. At least he says he didn't do them. Maybe us, the audience, are kind of unsure at the beginning because, you know, he's a little sneak, this kid. The ice cream thing kind of makes sense. I mean, because, of course, the parents are not going to believe there's actually a monster. And they know that he was up late eating a sandwich watching TV because he left the sandwich down there. So, like, you know, if I'm the dad, I'm probably going to assume the ice cream was him, too. And the bike. And the, the bike probably also. That was a pretty sick Ford Tempo that uh, Dad drives, huh? <laughs> Forest Green, Ford top exactly. of the line. Yeah, it's a brand new car. I'm glad somebody it's else. Six, six. I'm glad somebody else noticed it's a Ford Tempo. <laughs> I like when Brian gets on the school bus and he takes his little brother's lunch and just tosses it out the window. Yeah, what a dick move, right? <laughs> that, that's funny though. Like, it, oh, comedy. But it's still a dick move. But that's why? like something I would have done to my sister. And why would your younger brother have left half-eaten ice cream in a cabinet that's three feet higher off the ground than he, he is? The kid can't even reach it. <laughs> like, what do you think? He climbed a stepladder just to stash the ice cream up there? The kids climb all over the shit in I mean, the that's kitchen. true. I did. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Ugh. So, you know, Brian's... He's kind of struggling. He gets in some shit with the... Uh, the local bully kid who's Buzz from Home Alone, of Yes, course. I was wondering whether or not you guys noticed that. He's absolutely Buzz from Home Alone. He's been in some other stuff, too, but that yeah. That kid got a growth spurt the next year. Yeah, he got huge. Because he's way smaller in this movie than he is in Home Alone. They, right. They really, like, covered up his freckles a lot, though, too, for Home Alone. Like, because <laughs> right? in, in this movie, he's really, like, freckle-faced. And then in Home Alone, he's just, like, a pale Chicago kid. Freckle-faced cartoon? <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> but kind of funny that Macaulay Culkin was the runner-up for the brother, and then Buzz ended up being Buzz, you know. And Daniel Stern was and in Daniel Home Stern was in the Home Alone. Home Alone. That's right. Yeah. Hey, am, am I am I the only one that's like not really stoked about Daniel Stern's in this role? Like, I just didn't really feel like he was a great fit. Like, he was trying so hard to be a range actor here and like play a serious role, and it really is not him. I don't know. Maybe that's just my opinion. I don't necessarily disagree with you. If I'm being honest, I've just never thought. Like, I've always thought of his portrayal in this as being kind of innocuous. He's just sort of there, you know? But you're not wrong. Yeah, I mean, he's so much more of a, like, visual, comedic actor. Yeah, absolutely. And, And this role, like, he was trying to just act too much, I think. Yeah. You know who can't act is the local redheaded girl, Kirsten. Oh, yeah. That poor kid. I mean, no offense, girl, if you're listening, Amber Barreto. Yeah. But good God, this kid cannot act. This is cruel. Don't touch. It's fragile. It's a night-blooming cactus. I want to see if artificial sunlight changes its normal blooming pattern. I'm training it to bloom in the daytime. To be scientific, 
I document the results with Polaroids. Yeah, I mean, she was one of those little girls that was competent, excuse me, enough that you could squeeze her into a movie as a secondary character. But certainly not the kind of kid you expect is going to turn in like an Anna Paquin in the piano or Kirsten Dunst in, in interview type performance, you know? Right. <laughs> So Brian and Eric, the two brothers, they do switch rooms because Eric is certain that there's a monster that's coming out from under his bed. Brian's the older brother. He's more skeptical. And basically, he sleeps in the little brother's room so that he can prove that there's no monster, basically. Steve, how does that go? He ends up on the couch. He does not stay in that room. <laughs> he, yeah, uh, now I'm messing up in my head. Was this the first, when he really encountered Maurice for the first time with the clothes? Yeah, well, you can, yeah. we can combine them. It doesn't matter too much because he, he does it two nights in a row. Yeah, that's true. So the he, second night, he gets real goonies with it. Yeah, that's what's <laughs> the second night. So yeah, first, first night he sleeps in the room. There's a little bit of an experience and he ends up sleeping on the couch and the brother's like, hi, I told you there was a monster there. So Brian, Brian is like, fine, second night, I'm going back, but this time we're rambling this shit. Or you know what? It's actually kind of like uh, Schwarzenegger's setup at the end of the first Predator. They're really, they're really trying to capture this thing. <laughs> you mean it's a booby twap? Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said. Yeah. And uh, he uh, he rigs up the bed to ensure that it'll like slam back down on the ground and prevent whatever comes up from being able to go back. Second night in there, he manages to. To capture the monster, this goofy, blue-skinned, punk rocker, Howie Mandel-type monster. <laughs> he's a very um, Howie Mandel-type. <laughs> yeah, he's a very Howie Mandel-type. He's wearing gloves. <laughs> he won't touch anything in this kid's room. Um, no, but he is yeah. a Howie Mandel-type monster. Right? And, uh, he won't shake your hand, but he'll do a fist bump. Yeah, right? You know, and then this was the first time Howie Mandel shaved his head. <laughs> right. Um, and you know, so he's got the monster in the room, but he's freaking out. He doesn't know quite what to do. He's trying to keep it trapped there, and the, the, the lights in the room go on, and uh, the monster evaporates into just clothes. His body... Oh, no, wait. He shines the light on him. And then he gets, he tries to wrestle with the empty clothes. Now I'm forgetting exactly how this sequenced out. I'll tell you what happens, man. Yeah, it's amazing how many times I've seen this movie. He fucking tackles Fred Savage. Yeah. And it gets real weird. It does get a little weird. Yeah. Then he boots him off, which is like the empty clothes. And then the dad walks in and yeah. finds his stupid elaborate trap system with like Doritos everywhere. And like the, the bed is now like completely on the floor. And there's some empty adult clothes on the floor next to the bed that's on the floor. Where's the man who was wearing these clothes? Yeah, I want where's the where's the dude who's been in your room, buddy? <laughs> let's 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 figure out what the fuck is going on in my son's room right now. <laughs> what are you doing, Brian? What the hell is going on? Look at this mess. What what the hell am I stepping in? Doritos? Jesus. I'll clean them off. You damn right you will get back in that bed, mister. Dad, wait a minute. There was a monster here. You gotta believe me. A monster, Brian. It's a pile of clothes. You're wrestling a pile of clothes. What's so funny? After you finish cleaning this room tomorrow, you're gonna clean out the garage. And after the garage, you're gonna cut the hedges. But it wasn't my fault. After the hedges, you're gonna mow the lawn. It wasn't my fault. Good night. 
Uh, yeah, if I walked into my kid's room and there's fucking Doritos mashed into the floor everywhere and at 5.30 in the morning, clothes. yeah, I'm like, what the fuck <laughs> the is going fuck on? What the fuck is going dude? on this in is here? A problem. Yeah, this is, that's exactly, this is a problem as yeah. a parent that I need to deal with. <laughs> yeah. But the, seeing the old Doritos bag was awesome. There's another moment later in the movie where one of the kids has got a can of 7-Up. I think it's Cherry 7-Up and the old can was really a kicker. I wish they'd bring that can design back. <laughs> do you remember? Will, it will eventually. Do you remember right? when they made the six ounce cans? Yes. Um, and so it was the 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 width and circumference of the twelve ounce can, but it came in a six ounce version. <laughs> I think Seven Up and Cherry Seven Up were the first ones to do that. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was awesome. The <laughs> Cherry Seven Up, I always loved. It was a real big hit in the late eighties and early nineties. And I can you even get it anymore? I haven't seen it in a long time. Did did either one of you guys have a seven up yours shirt? <laughs> do you remember those? <laughs> no, yeah, God. I do remember those. But I, I didn't did, have one. But oh, it's I like did, a Jonathan thing to have. I didn't ever had one. I oh, wanted okay. one. But I did have a lot of no fear shirts. Oh, and good. one of them said, Are you it had red drop droplets on it, said, Are you gonna do anything or just stand there and bleed? My mother hated it. Every time I wore it, she's like, I hate that shit. She doesn't like shirt. tombstone? Right? Yeah, exactly. Which is funny because Tombstone is actually sincerely one of my mother's favorite fucking movies. My mom's one of the most cowboys, Southwest obsessed people you'll ever meet in your life. She just got the history memorized and like, she loves that movie. Yeah. I, I saw this meme the other day. And it's that that's what you, uh, same line you give your girlfriend when she's on her period. It's <laughs> 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 uh, awful. Always here for our female <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Tombstone shit. Posting. All four of them. Right. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I think we're at the part now where like the sun's coming up. Right. Yeah. And, and Maurice starts like melting away and Brian just sits there and like watches this creature just fucking die, dude. Like he's right. going away and, and Brian's just sitting there like asking himself questions and thinking out loud while this monster just like burns and smokes and like disintegrates into the floor. Like he literally just murdered Maurice. You died. It's the sunlight, isn't it? First it disfigures you, then it kills you. Nah, you're mixing me up with that pansy with the red cape. Under the bed before, before the sun totally rises. No way. You wrecked my bike. You've been pulling stuff, trying to get me in trouble. Well, he wants him to die for all the bad things he's done to you him. You hit but- the remote. Yeah, you deserve to die for your crimes. Yeah, but, Some crimes can't be forgiving. Yeah. But how how psychopathic is that to sit there and just watch somebody yeah, die, though? And I feel like, like he's he's very fascinated. He's like, I've always wanted to watch someone die. <laughs> Dad made me drive away from that car wreck last year. <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't let me look inside. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's pretty sick. What do you think of Maurice, Jonathan? How would you describe him to people? I think he's a lot of fun. He's a ball of energy that's literally like a hundred miles an hour at all times. And I think that that's one of the scenes that we get here that, that I've remembered forever. And he's really trying to like bond with Brian at this point. 
and they're talking about like, he's like, Oh, baseball cards. And he sees all these cards on the wall and you get that, that scene of got him, got him, need him, got him, got him, need him, got him, got him, need him. <laughs> and like, I has always stuck with me. Like since I was a kid, like if I go to the store and I see something and like, um, for a little while I was like trying to collect like hot wheels, or at least I thought I wanted to collect hot wheels. And I would do that in my head, like at Walmart or something, looking at him and like, got him, got him, need him, got him, got him, got him, need him. And, uh, anyways, scream, scream. Good idea. You know what? You scream. Your dad's going to come in here with a 12 gauge shotgun. Blow your head off. Actually. I'll scream. (laughs) Great. Actually, Dad's gonna come in here and find a Rito puke all over the floor. What's he gonna say, huh? Wow! Baseball cards. I love baseball cards. Got him, got him, need him, got him, got him, got him, need him, got him, need him, need him, got him, got him, got him. Yeah, I used to say that when I was a kid because of this movie. Right. It's been a long time, but yeah. There were some nice little background touches in the kids' rooms, even though some of them were ridiculous, like Brian's room. They put up a poster for license. I think it's for license to drive, which had two Corys in it: Corey Heyman, Corey Feldman, who were massively popular in my 1989. Namesakes, yeah, right. And uh, yeah, your Corey's mother loves Corey Haim so much. <laughs> R.I.P. Kid, <laughs> right? Yeah. And the movie had only come out like three months before they started production on this, so they got a poster for it, put it up in his room. They probably just copied Fred's room from his house, <laughs> brought it over there. Said, all right, this looks like a bunch of shit you'd have in your room at home. Yeah. It's except def- n- no pictures of Danica McKellar. Oh, well, yeah, you know, which <laughs> I definitely had a few, but. Oh, you know, when th- this was right about when Wonder Years started, right? Second season. Yeah, yeah second season. So it was yeah. relatively very new. Could you imagine they had an Easter egg of Winnie in there? That would have been <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Oh, he just he wakes up at the end of the movie and it turns out he left through the wrong portal and now he's in the, the Wonder Years world. Yeah. <laughs> the Wonder Years is like a time travel show. Like oh, yeah. he's stuck in the past. <laughs> he wakes up to Hey butthead. <laughs> oh god. Fucking Wayne, you yeah. piece of shit. Fucking Wayne. I with, fucking hate Wayne. With, with his yeah. stupid like Daniel Boone hat. <laughs> I don't get me wrong, I love that show, but I don't get away with I don't believe that with a father like that, that kid would get away for act with acting like that for that long. I think eventually his father would just beat the living shit out of him. <laughs> Like there's like that my my dad's dad was a very genuinely nice man, but he was a lot like the father character in that show and was a combat vet. And like I, I if I'd done that or acted that way around him, I would have gotten the shit. Beat out of me. He he should have like, at least gotten a few like loaded beer cans to the head. Right. right? Like, yeah, come something. on. Like, God damn it. Shut, the, shut fuck the fuck up, up Wayne. <laughs> beer can. Absolutely. Uh, I told you to stop fucking with your brother. Oh, Uh, anyway. We're going to get the cops called on us. Right? (laughs) So, Brian does not let Maurice die. And because of that, Maurice kind of comes back and pays him more visits and tries to bond with him. Right, Jonathan? Yeah, and he uh, brought his dad's TV remote back because he had to watch the the PGA Tour and the Knicks basketball game and whatever else was on all at the same time. The only way he could do that was with the remote. I get it, but the PGA games, like that... The game takes all day to play out. The basketball game is going to last two hours. Just watch the basketball game and then switch to the golf. Yeah, it, and <laughs> plus, plus it was kind of fucked up that like the mom was sitting there working on the house 
uh, all by herself while this guy sat there with a fat ass bag of chips and wanted to watch three different sporting events at once. Like, no wonder they're getting divorced, you know? Like, fuck, man. I think they said that now he's working full time and she's like a stay at home mom. So maybe there's an expectation for her to do this stuff around the house. I don't know exactly, but they do specifically allude to right. the lack of them having sex. Yeah, did you yeah. guys pick up on that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I, 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 there's a moment where you can hear from outside the door one of their arguments, and she's just something like, you know, I want the husband who's going to be there for me physically or something like that. Yeah, but absolutely. He's yeah. like, I have a headache or something. Like that. I <laughs> you always headache. have a headache. <laughs> yeah. Dude, they, yeah, they go to that parents arguing like probably three or four times throughout this movie. Right. And, and really like, they really hit hard on that, you know? Right. And, and, and I think... I, and I don't know if it was even like really necessary. Like you already got that they had problems anyways and that they were, you know, that you get this scene later where they're going to talk about splitting up, but we'll get there. Um, but for this being like a target audience of younger kids, early teens, preteen, maybe like this is a pretty fucked up movie. Even we haven't even gotten to the fucked up stuff yet, but like <laughs> between the language and like, triggering these kids with with the fighting i mean and i'm talking about like the audience right like people watching this show like or this movie you're like oh fuck like their their parents argue too so do mine like it's like i don't know i feel like this would just put today's kids like in a weird state of mind i i feel very much and have for years now that for whatever reason there was an expectation in cinema during roughly between like the early 80s and the mid to late 90s mid 90s that like kids could just handle more and that the, the industry is railed back on that now. And like, we would never present these kids with these issues in these ways. Oh yeah. I'm pretty sure R rated movies in a lot of cases back then were specifically made for children. Yeah. Even though they were rated R. <laughs> right. Terminator 2 had a toy line. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. Is toy tie-ins to movies like T2. And <laughs> Robocop had a, had a animated yeah, show. Yeah, they made a show out of Robocop. <laughs> yeah, that's very weird. I mean, like, the Ghostbusters movies weren't particularly violent or anything, but they made toys out of those when, like, the movie itself wasn't kid-inappropriate, but it certainly wasn't aimed at children. Yeah. You know? Like... So Maurice pitches like the monster world to Brian. He says, I, I'm from this place that's amazing. I'm one of many monsters. We go under the bed, which is a special portal through monster magic that takes us to our land. And we go around scaring the fuck out of kids. It's kind of like our job. Monster magic is a great album name. Anyway. <laughs> and, I, you know, Maurice looks like he could be in a band. Maybe that would be like his punk band. He's very much a typical... 18 to 25 year old moderate punker you know I, I mean like like not the kind of punk dude that's like cutting himself and advocating for anarchy but like a teenager who kind of likes punk rock and is doing mischievous stuff I'll tell you what it is he would be one of the guys that would be recruited into the foot clan okay all right since you brought it up and since you brought that up I'm gonna mention one other side note here I was gonna say this for a little later the Monster World and some of the other sets were built inside of a, a disused cement factory in Carolina. This company had gone through a downturn and it had to shut down a production facility and warehouse. And it was perfect and it had just enough space and they were filming in Carolina anyway for a tax break. 
So they used the inside of this warehouse to build all of the Monster World stuff. And it worked so well for them, and the word got out that over a period of a few years afterward, they filmed a handful of different things inside that same disused cement plant, and one of them was the Foot Clan hideout from the original TMNT. So that is, in fact, the exact same building. Wow. Yeah. And I, I think, Steve, if it's the same place, I think that might have been where Pennywise's lair is in the It miniseries. That may also be true. I'm not sure about that. I know that they also filmed <laughs> large parts of the 93 Super Mario movie in there. Oh, okay. So that the inside of that warehouse is Monster mm. World from this. It's part of the Foot Clan's hideout from TMNT, and it's part of the uh, the Koopa world in the original Ninja Turtles. It may also be from, from yeah. Question for you. Got any cigarettes? Regular or menthol? <laughs> Not Lucy's. That's illegal. Oh, come on. <laughs> you're supposed to say regular or menthol. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I really uh, wish people still sold Lucy's, man. Sometimes you just want one. It's, they see that, yeah, absolutely. And it was so great, especially when I was younger. Like I could go into a store and get like two of them. Go to the know. ice cream man, <laughs> drive it around, <laughs> get that, one single for a quarter. That dude had everything. Uh, one other thing, I guess, is worth adding. Now I was going to save it for the for the end discussion. But uh, Howie Mandel, in his biography, this is definitely him saying it because he wrote it in his own biography mentions working on this movie and apparently it was really hot and really humid while they were working in North Carolina, no surprise. And in addition to that, all the lights inside the set and all the people and the equipment and it's hotter than shit and he's covered in makeup and multiple different plastic appliances for the monster effect. And he referred to the sweaty experience doing this as what he thinks it must feel like to be inside of a a condom while it's being used. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) speaking of latex (laughs) right what did you guys think about maurice's like makeup and prosthetics and all that fun stuff i mean i love the creatures in me and the monsters but it's all very beetlejuice ask you can see that the beetlejuice guy just brought that aesthetic (laughs) to this like this is this is fucking beetlejuice for kids even how he's bit as maurice is like this he's he's doing a michael keaton like there's a there's several moments where I was like he is channeling Beetlejuice right now, and I don't even mean it in a bad way. I really enjoyed it. I think that's part of what I liked about this movie as a kid. I loved Beetlejuice as a kid. I still love it now. Like I think Beetlejuice has aged quite gracefully compared to well, this in terms of the performance of the supernatural being. I would agree with you about that, but I would also put an asterisk next to it to say that Beetlejuice what Beetlejuice's primary audience wasn't eight to twelve year olds. You know, I, no, but it was a but still that's a, who watched it though. Well, it's some of who watched it. It was still targeted <laughs> towards kids. Beetlejuice was definitely targeted to the younger, like, kid generation, even though it was totally inappropriate for them at the time. I don't know that I agree with that. I think that movie was really mostly aimed at, like, the 18 to 35 audience. I, they did make a cartoon out of it. It's another one. There it is. I but watched the hell out of that cartoon, and I had Beetlejuice toys, action oh, dude. figures, dude. dude. The movie in the Those had some the, of the best toys of the I, 90s. I had yeah, the absolutely. hammer hands with the umbrella hat, dude. Those are, That's but, the toy that I had as a kid. But that really felt more like a case of the industry realizing it could co-opt something that wasn't really 
necessarily meant for kids. I mean, you watch that movie as an adult and it's like, this is, I'm not saying it's inappropriate, but it's definitely not a kid movie. Even the advertising, like you watch the advertising for this. It's like, this is definitely a movie for 12 year olds. Mm -hmm. You watch the advertising for Beetlejuice. It's like, it's not necessarily that I wouldn't take a 12 year old to go see it, but I do not get the impression that that's the, the target audience. I don't know. They're both rated PG. This okay. and Beetlejuice are both PG. Yeah, but I mean, we've let's not get into the discussion about how ratings work. No, again, nice you know. fucking model, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, you know, it, it's it's. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I can I can see where you're coming from, but like, I I definitely this was a much smaller budget production aimed mostly at kids, and I I just don't think it was ever really going to age the same way from an adult's perspective. I want to shift gears real, real, real quick to get back on track a little bit because I want to talk about Monster World before I forget. Right. Because I remember Monster World being a certain way, like more fun. I remember it being very dark, which it is because they have a, like a light allergy, right? The monsters, yeah. they can't take bright lights. They're very gremlin-esque in that way. <laughs> but Monster World kind of sucks. I mean, they don't give us uh, enough cool things, I think, in it. So when you first get to Monster World, it's just like palette world. It's just palettes. It's just like hundreds of palettes everywhere (laughs) and stairs. Now, the stairs actually do have a meaning within the context of Monster World, so that's good, right? They lead you up to a bed. The rules are very iffy, but Jonathan, I mean, what did you think about Monster World? So when we first get to Monster World, Maurice takes... Brian to the arcade so you can go play pinball. I guess um, that's the one place where lights don't hurt them. Yeah, yeah apparently. Really bright you know what? It, it it was actually what I noticed throughout the movie was that it was a certain Kelvin, a certain temperature of light actually was like not a problem for them. And it was like, it was a really equivalence that bother them. Yeah. So (laughs) if you got higher up by like a, like a 3,500 K up to like 5,000 K, like it was a problem for them, but the lights that didn't seem to affect them were much lower, like a 1200 K range, which is very, very yellow. The higher number you get is more white. Astute observation. Yeah. And so, well, we saw a lot of like really dimly lit areas, right? It was like a really yellowy gold kind of colored light and it wasn't harming them at all because we saw that throughout their underworld there. But I, I feel like Maurice tried to pitch him on like, you know, coming down there and playing arcade every night and going to the, the food buffet, which was like just disgusting, but it was kind of like, it was kind of Lost Boys-ish, right? Like Pinocchio. That, yeah, Pinocchio is exactly the vibes that I got. But like Pinocchio or like the the uh, Monster World in Space Jam, like those look way more fun. Like this was just like a bullshit like underground that was a total scam. I loved it as a kid. I still like the intention of it now. I, I like the direction they were going with it. I think their big problem is they didn't have the space or the money to do more with it. How could you like the intention? It was a fucking trap for kids. <laughs> well, I like the intention of the aesthetic, I guess. Oh I should yeah. Say. Okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, but in that, in that regard, it's just, I mean, the, the Pinocchio analogy is probably the most apt because you think about the donkey Island in Pinocchio. 
It's the same basic idea. It's kids who don't want to behave, who think being little assholes is more fun and are sick of their parents' bullshit. And this is where they go. And you get what you get when you're there. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I liked it. I, I like the arcade. I like the lighting. Even the palette parts of it didn't bother me so much. I feel like the, well, as a kid, I didn't notice at all. Then the guy who did the commentary actually pointed this out. He said the exact same thing, that he'd seen this movie as a kid the first time in 89 and thought that the monster world looked amazing. And it's something that doesn't really age as well as an adult, because an adult, you're looking closer and you expect more. Yes. But I think I think if they'd made this on double the budget, what we would have gotten would have been really amazing. I think I, M- MGM, as I pointed out, didn't take this movie seriously. They didn't give a shit about it. They barely advertised it. It only got released in 171 or some odd theaters. So I, I, I generally like it, but I can also appreciate where its shortcomings come into play. They probably could have gotten me to stay if they'd have had a better like food assortment. Like it literally just looked like cafeteria food. <laughs> that, <laughs> school. That's, the, that's the thing to get Jonathan in. You got to <laughs> you got to reel in the kids with their own thing that they want. So what about the yeah, scene right? in Hook where they're just eating pretend colored mush? Oh, I love the mush, though. I would rather eat that than, like, those plain-ass fucking hamburgers that they had there, dude. Didn't even have, like, cheese on them or anything. Like, dude, they looked so boring. Brian happens to be lactose intolerant. Yeah. (laughs) Man, fuck Brian. (laughs) All right, three points. One is that the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie captured a kid's paradise perfectly, way more so than this movie did. Right. So like the Foot Clan hideout is a fucking amazing. It's like a skate park. It's like an arcade. There's gambling. There's electronics. I'm not sure I totally agree with you. I mean, I think it's better, but I don't know. But also much bigger budget, much bigger budget. Okay. Rumble Rumble in the Bronx hideout was better than this. (laughs) That one was good, too. That one was a lot of drinking, though, and like shooting heroin. (laughs) And like, well, it's still better than this. (laughs) Those things are fun. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, exactly. My second point is that the the streets in the monster world are lit like a Disneyland attraction or like a theme park attraction. Right. Right. With like the red and blue ceiling lights coming down. Right. Like it almost looks like the E.T. line ride. Right. Ride line. I mean. Third thing is that... Wait, I don't understand what the criticism is in the second thing. No, it's not a criticism. It's just a, like a thing I noticed, right? It's like, oh. this could be like a theme park attraction line. Okay, right? it feels yeah, like I it. Or like you. Roger Rabbit. I, that one I like, because I knew a lot of kids and teens growing up, like between 11 and 14, that would do like Christmas lights or string lights in their rooms as decoration. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, the third thing is that like, this could be like a trip. Like, the, it could be like a... Like, almost like a parallel or like a, an other meaning, like... These people could all be like tweakers, right? Yeah. And he could be like just in North Hollywood instead of Monster World. And it's just like all these fucked up people at night, like yes. scrounging around, doing whatever the fuck they want, breaking shit. I think you're 100% right about that. In fact, there's this vague implication in the film that these all used to be regular kids who turned into what they turned into after just living in Monster World full time. They're like shitty kids who escaped down there and stayed that way. So absolutely, it's kind of like this is what happens when you start off a normal person who's done math like three times and yeah. you keep doing it regularly and here's where you end up. <laughs> exactly. That's, right. that's the metaphor. Right. It's perfect. <laughs> uh, but what what I remember most from this movie is really like Maurice taking Fred Savage out to go do monster activities. Right. Yeah. Now, this is like what you think of, I think, when you think of this movie. It's like Fred Savage and Maurice as pals causing shenanigans. Yeah. Now, it's interesting to me, Steve, that this movie actually came out before Home Alone, but it has like a lot of the similar like 
pranks and stuff that you get in Home Alone. Right. And and in my mind, when I think of all those 90s kids movies where they have like elaborate traps and pranks and stuff, yeah. they all kind of stem from Home Alone. But this one actually came first. Not to say that it created the influence because it was right. kind of underground. But I think it was a pioneer in that way. I, I agree with you. And that's another one of those, one of the reasons why I'll give it some leeway with stuff like the underworld. And I'm not going to totally argue with you about it. I mean, the version in TMNT was bigger and, and better. I just don't know that I consider it a huge gap. But I, I think in a lot of cases, this really was the first example of them having some of those ideas. Not to say that those movies weren't better for other reasons, but I think it's easier to a small degree to take a concept and do it better when someone else has already been the first one to do it. You know, it's really easy to look at the first example and say, oh, that's really cool. Here's how we can make a better version of it. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. Jonathan, some of the shenanigans they get into is like scaring little kids, right? Like they go to one kid and this one is my favorite and it's the simplest. There's some kid that's sleeping in, in his bed. <laughs> they come up from the monster world under his bed. They're in his bedroom. He's still asleep. They go close to his face and just scream in his face. <laughs> That's pretty fucked up. It really is. Don't you but, think that kid in retrospect would wonder why one of them wasn't the monster? Yeah, I was so just weird. literally going to say that. Like, okay, what if this was a real thing, right? Like, th these monsters actually do come and scare kids. But if another kid came with the monster, right. like, would you be that scared? Or would you be like, Punching oh, like, like, this kid is like... Also with this guy, so my with reaction this monster. at twelve would have been to hit him. Yeah. Like I can't hit the monsters, but I can hit this fucking kid. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Uh. Also, that makes me think if we're, let's say we're we're looking at this from the the viewpoint of it being the Tweakers parallel <laughs> universe, like him, Maurice taking Brian overnight for like three nights in a row and forcing him to not sleep and they're doing pranks all night. He's getting him fucking hooked. Mm -hmm. Like he's literally gave him his first taste and like was forcing him to, he was trying to hold it together, going to school. He's got his sunglasses oh, on cause he's all hung over his fuck, you know? Yeah. And, dude, and then right. he brings him back the next night. Here we go. Let's go for round two. That is both of you made very astute points there. I, not that I'm surprised by it, but I'm surprised just at the realization I hadn't thought of it myself. You're absolutely right. He's the, the, the meth analogy is right. And, and Maurice is the peddler. He's trying to get, here's your free taste kid. You know, fuck that's rotten. And then, and then when you try to like, I don't, I can't have this shit anymore. You get fucking stink, whatever his fuck his name is. Yeah. The, the fucking kingpin, you know? <laughs> Oh my god, he was in a bunch of other stuff. Well, that guy, that guy who plays him, he was the the producer guy on Wayne's World, the guy who's like, "All right, guys, look, when I go 1 2 3, like he was that guy." Is that the same Another actor? Chicago native. Dude, there's so many yeah. Chicago people here. You know, a lot of these people were all members of Second City together and they got yeah. famous together. Yeah. But uh We'll talk about Snick in a little bit. I have some uh Oh yeah, I always called things. him Stink ever since I was a kid. I think you might be thinking of a different guy, but... Really? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not sure that's the same actor. But I'll talk about that actor shortly. For now, I just want to kind of talk about the pranks. Because some of them are memorable to me. Some right. are more than the others. Like, there's plastic wrap on a toilet seat. 
right? Which <laughs> it's like the idea is you go sit down to take a shit and then it's like smushed up right against okay. your ass. Or okay, you pee without you... seeing it's there and it goes all over the floor. Right. Dude, yeah. they use the wrong plastic, man. You're supposed to use like Reynolds wrap, right? Yeah. Like Like stretch plastic. And they didn't use stretch plastic. It was like just a piece of like plastic cut out of like, a sheet. Like a like piece a plastic... of film? Yeah, something mm. like that. And it was just kind of sitting there like, I mean... If you were to piss on that, it's just going to fall right into the toilet. There's nothing like... It's not holding it there. It'll clog the toilet. Dude. That's inconvenient. Yeah, you know, I mean, why didn't they... My brother once, I mean, in fairness, was seriously two and a half or three years old. He was really little. But he really did put an action figure down the toilet once. I don't know why the monsters wouldn't just do that. <laughs> action. You know? I don't know. We, we still have... We, even he, he's got you put no, your Egon down the toilet? Yeah, it was, it was. I think it was one of mine. I don't remember which one it was. I, my mother remembers it happening. He had... I don't... Look, three-year-olds, I think, sometimes just do stuff on impulse. I'm not sure he even thought that he had a reason to do Three-year-olds it. Three-year-olds are funny, dude. It, they are. They are. And that's part of the reason, like, even my parents weren't really that mad. It was just like, he's three, you know? <laughs> I love telling this story, and it really has nothing to do with anything about this movie. But when my brother was, like, three... He used to push around this little toy. It was like a, it was like a little like lawnmower kind of toy, and like right. it had wheels, and you, and like it had like balls on the inside, and they would like, they would like bounce all around. Right. So it would kind of look like he was pushing around a little toy lawnmower. I had the same thing. I used to push it around behind my dad. My 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 parents bought their first house like a year and a half before I was born, and my dad went through this period early on where he was like, "I'm going to do all the landscaping myself," and it lasted till I was about three. <laughs> but uh, when I was really little, I'd walk behind him in the front yard while he was mowing and push push the same exact thing. Right. That's funny. So this thing was like heavy on the end, right on the part that's on the ground (laughs) my little toddler brother would be pushing it around the living room and one time my other brother robert he was just sitting there watching tv sitting on the floor in the living room and my brother was pushing this thing behind him and my little brother stopped his name was nick and he looked at my other brother sitting there and he picked up this thing and he swung it like a baseball bat (laughs) to the back of his head oh my god just because he's a toddler and he doesn't like know <laughs> and, he, and I was just sitting on the couch watching this unfold. I was like, "This is going to be awesome!" And he just bashed this fucker upside the head, and it was hilarious. I remember it for the rest of my life. God, my brother was it must have been about a year and a half after the action figure was standing in the living room. I don't know why. Another little kid didn't. I probably didn't know why. He was swinging. He had a, a wiffle ball with the holes drilled in a plastic wiffle ball, but he was using one of my real like metal little league bats. And he was standing in the living room trying to hit the wiffle ball with the metal bat. And he, he whiffed one of them and accidentally hit the screen of my father's real expensive TV oh and, and put, a, put a chip in it. That's how we ended up replacing that TV. <laughs> that one, my, my dad didn't like yell or anything because he appreciated the little kid. He didn't know what he was doing. But that I could tell my dad was he was upside. <laughs> he was real upside. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? uh. <laughs> So monster pranks, huh? Uh, yes. <clears throat> That's where we also get that perspective of not doing anything above three foot nine. Like if you're going to fuck around and mess stuff up or mark on the walls. I, I forget what they were doing. Something to the refrigerator uh, in the kitchen scene. And he was like specifically like, don't go up to the freezer section. Like you're just going to be down here on the fridge. <laughs> Six. Six. <laughs> Always against white. Yeah. 
And then uh, the, the old piss in the apple juice is a good one. That's very problem child. That, it is very problem child. And that's one of those bits that was especially some in problem child too, where I'm like, there's no way they would write this in now. Or at the very least, there's no way the kid's reaction would be the same. If a kid in a movie now said, who put piss in my apple juice? People would go fucking crazy about it. It's one of those moments with stuff like Home Alone and Problem Child where I'm like, I can't believe what they put in kids' movies when I was a kid. <laughs> it wasn't terrible, though. No, it wasn't. I don't know. It, it was worst. funny. I it thought is. it was funny. The fucking asshole bully deserved it. A cat food right. sandwich and a piss apple juice. Fred Savage keeps doing that. What was that movie? Fred Savage is in another movie where he fills a water gun with pee and sprays it at somebody. What movie was that? I'll think of it. Anyway. We did get that little gem of a scene where Maurice opens up the cat food can with his teeth. Yeah. And it, like he gets it to like spin around like an electric can opener. Yes, very uh very appropriate for his character. He has like somewhat supernatural powers, right? Like he can kind of do yeah. like things that a normal person can't do, but they're never really explained. I think it's kept vague enough to be cool. He's not like all powerful or anything. But monster magic. <laughs> he's got a little monster magic, you know? I love that term. I'm going to use it for everything now. Ugh. In the monster world, though, one thing that happens that's kind of weird is that Brian, Fred Savage, he gets pantsed by Maurice. Yeah. And then some like lady monster says, nice ass. Yeah. <laughs> Why'd you do that? <laughs> you know, I thought that was really weird until, like, you realize that it's another kid. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. And it's not that bad. Because that's, it's like, just... what a kid would say to another kid, right? Right. Like, you'd make fun of you, like, ah, nice ass. Yeah. Right. Like, to embarrass them. Yeah. yeah. Not but that it... you actually like their ass. But <laughs> but they make it sound like like it's an old, like sick garbage can lady right like that's the voice that yeah. was portrayed in that scene there nice ass sonny yeah. this used to be all orange groves Dude, can you imagine what sesame street would be like if you rewrote it as like a, an intense horror for adults and oscar the grouch was something really awful living in that trash can Ooh. anyway <laughs> all right so we can talk about uh Snick, who is a monster with the biggest underbite in all of the land. You know, boy gets what he wants. When he asks you for a favor, you should take that as a compliment. What? I tried. You gotta believe me, Snake. I tried. Oh, you tried, did you, Arnold? Well, you didn't try hard enough. My, my knees, they hurt. Oh, your knees hurt? Well, that's not all that's gonna hurt, Arnold. You know why? Because I'm gonna take my big thumb and jam it in your eye. Now I'm gonna take my finger and put it in the corner of your mouth and I'm gonna rip the corner of your mouth out. <laughs> that's good for a laugh, isn't it? Huh? You're scared of me, aren't you, Arnold? Oh, I like that. Oh, I love that. 
he reminds me a lot. I I know that it's not meatloaf, but he reminds me a lot of meatloaf. That's what my wife said. Right? Yeah. He's it's, a guy called Rick Dokomen. Yeah, yeah, and I know he had some other pretty damn decent parts, but I can't think of what they were off the top of my head now. Well, I, so I stand corrected earlier. I was totally wrong. So yeah. my bad. But to uh, Rick Dokomen, but I mean, I know he was like in Spaceballs. He had he was Cindy's dad in Scary Movie, mm-hmm. and but he was in a lot of things for sure. But Corey's probably got a list. <laughs> do you have his resume up? Because I know there's something on there that when I hear it, I'll be like, "That's the one I'm the thinking." Burbs. Of. The Burbs. Thank you. He yeah. was the neighbor in the Burbs. He With was Tom the Hanks, neighbor right? in the Burbs. That's what it was. Yes, a hundred percent. Thank you. Yeah. He was also the limo driver in Blank Check. Oh, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah. The, I don't like this dude. The Burbs is what, what? I was thinking Why of. Not? Dude, the Burbs is awesome. I don't like the Burbs. What? <laughs> this is going to... No, don't stop it. Stop it. Corey, stop it. <laughs> All right. So he was also in... He had a role in Die Hard, small. Yeah. He was in The Hunt for Red October. He was in Encino Man. <laughs> One of Polly Shore's finest. That probably actually is his best movie by like a really, really big margin. Yeah. <laughs> Loaded Weapon One, Groundhog Day, Last Action Hero. He had a good run. He's dead now, but yeah, he had he yeah. was in uh, yeah. some some fairly big movies. I just mostly don't like him from Blank Check. Always put like a bad taste in my mouth. That like, movie I, is fucking awful. I never thought he was funny, and he's supposed to be like the the comedic relief in that movie. Fool is gold are soon parted. Those old sayings, man. I don't get them. I don't even know really what that means. You ever heard that uh, more than one way to skin a cat? You heard that one? Who skins cats? Why would you skin a cat? And there is not more than one way to skin a cat. There is only one way to skin a cat. You grab the cat, you rip the skin off the cat. Even as a kid, I was very lukewarm about that movie, and I've just, just gotten worse for me as time goes on. Like it, also, even in early '90s money, there's no way a million dollars buys you all of that. No, I know we've discussed <laughs> this, yeah, <laughs> at length. <laughs> yeah, he's a total enabler in that movie for sure. <laughs> so, Snick is the name of this like mafioso monster. He he's is, a enforcer. He's not a Nickelodeon Saturday Night lineup. Just as a note, some yeah. people hear Snick. I might- feel like he's a reject from All Real Monsters because he's too mean. This show is like All Real Monsters. It sort of is. Right? The monster, and which kind of later became Monsters, Inc. Right? There's yeah. like a monster underworld, and their job is to go scare kids. A lot of comparisons between this and Monsters, Inc., for right. sure. But yeah. All Real Monsters was before Monsters, Inc., and that really, I think, in my mind, was like, had to have been an inspiration. If not yeah. directly, then indirectly. You know, you can be ex- inspired from something that you never really saw from like word of mouth kind of stuff. That was a good one, man. I love that show. Yeah. Yeah. Not very many at that level, but that was one of them. Do you want to know what my note is after getting uh, introduced to uh, Snick? Yeah. It was, we get introduced to the little monster child smuggling ring. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, it is, though. Every world's got one. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, it's an underground slave monster child trading ring. Yeah, there's human trafficking, even in the monster world. It's unescapable, Steve. Have these events where monsters sit around in turbans bidding on the kids? Anyway. Yes. <laughs> and berets. And berets. It was, everyone's smoking a cigarette and yeah. they've all got a bodyguard with them. They have different hats. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's an international event. Yeah. International scumbags. Each hat represents the area they're from. Like, there's a Fez hat guy. Right? Yeah. 
He was from Egypt. Well, he might just be a uh, Shriner. You never know. <laughs> For no reason at all in this movie, there's this monster ball montage, and I fucking hate it. Like, it really comes out of nowhere. It's like, all right, monster ball. It's like they almost ran out of things to do in the monster land, so they're like, oh, we play baseball. It okay. does feel a little bit like filler. I, I get it. Like, they want to reinforce Brian becoming more and more part of that world, but I agree. I think this feel like filler. Did, did I totally make up in my head the part where he talks about when they hit stuff with the baseball that it actually breaks up in yeah. the normal universe? Did I make that up? I, I didn't hear that. Did they say that? I, I, they were definitely breaking stuff. I don't know about that part. I must have made but, that up in my head. Uh, it been awesome. I kind of <laughs> like, I mean, I, it does feel fuller to me, but I, I did think it was kind of fun. I liked it more as a kid than I like it now. Also, they wanted to give a little extra work for Ben. So Ben plays one of the monsters at bat, but he's dressed up to the point you can't see it's him. Okay. Yeah. Some of the monsters look cool, and some of them are just like a mask. Yeah. Yeah, that's another one. It's, 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 it, I think... It, one of those areas, other areas where it's like it looked like they were doing good creative work, but they didn't really have enough budget to dress everyone up. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of them just got like the Star Wars, like they got a Rick Baker mask, you know? <laughs> like a werewolf mask that's been slightly repurposed. The Wolfman guy, right? Or a trash can that we put legs on and call the uh, droid. Throwback to our Star Wars episode, <laughs> right? I think he's called Gonk. <laughs> Did you catch the one guy who? Um, who hit the like the long ball, hit the home run. He looked like an inspiration for the boogeyman in Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh. Oh. Like he totally looked like he was made out of like an old like burlap like sack. burlap sack, potato sack kind of guy. Oogie yeah. Boogie's fucking awesome. Nightmare Before Christmas is the best. Yeah, he Fuck I yeah. totally yeah. got those vibes from from that guy. Totally. So, I mean, Brian does spend a lot of time with Maurice, but eventually their relationship becomes strained. Brian gets mad at him because Maurice causes chaos in his, like, friend's life. The girl, right? Her name's Kirsten. Yeah, well, and it's kind of jealousy. I think that's after the baby scaring scene, isn't it? Oh, shit. Yeah. I think this is around that time. Yeah, I, yeah, I think what happened... So, he's going on all these nighttime scares with the monsters, but he gets dragged with them into the room of an infant. He's like, I'm not scaring an infant. That's ridiculous. And and, there's like eight monsters <laughs> in there. Yeah. Just screaming in his face. And it doesn't really make any sense. Like, what do you get out of scaring an infant? Everything makes an infant cry. Right. But uh, <laughs> but um, that, that's the moment where you can see that Brian suddenly has this behavioral line that the monsters are willing to cross and that he's not... And when he tries to leave, he starts to shrink away from the light. And that's the moment he has the realization that the more time he spends with them, the more he becomes one of them. And that he's got these qualms about whether or not he's really as quote-unquote bad as they are. And uh, maybe it's better for him. Like, the escape from real life has been fun, but it probably can't be permanent unless he wants to be there permanently. And Maurice gets jealous and destroys the little girl's homework with the dog hand. Yeah. And there's a, there's, this is one of those moments where they definitely laced a little bit of adult humor in there where, where I will definitely concede there's a sort of overlap tonally with Beetlejuice because he, he turns his hand into it, right hand into a dog and then he's got this little line you almost miss where he says, a man's best friend is right hand. Man's best friend is right hand. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a total jack off joke right? for sure. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, right? super super appropriate while you're like tearing up a little girl's homework, right? right? Like while she's sleeping. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's awful. That's one of those good throw ins there because I mean, nine, I was six, six when this movie came out. I didn't, that joke went right over my head at six. I didn't even know it was there. You, I mean, forget asking me if I understood what it meant. I didn't even realize that the joke was present right. as a six year old. So yeah, you know, like. This is also the area kind of where. Brian's parents say like we're separating yeah. and honestly I think it's the biggest emotional pull of the movie because right. it just feels so real and like earned yeah. it was like planted and paid off and it, it's well timed story wise because it's overlapping with that realization on Brian's part that he's going to turn into one of these monsters if he keeps spending time there and so now he's got this this really difficult choice from a kid's perspective where it's like there's all this shitty stuff going on in my real life that I really don't want to have to be a participant in or have to deal with. It's a lot more fun for me to just indulge myself in Monster World, but if I spend too much more time there, that's going to be life for me. So, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. We get this gem of a scene from Ben Savage also where he, like, feels like he's responsible for his parents' splitting up yeah. you know where he starts crying he's like i'm gonna change i'm gonna do better i promise and it's like i i think n- not that i have been there but i have friends that have all witnessed their parents splitting up or been a part of that and and to some degree like they've all expressed that they felt a little bit responsible for that even though they had no responsibility in it whatsoever right. so it's kind of funny how like those same feelings like happen throughout all these yeah, households. It's just a very know? common thing. I think for children, and yeah. I think I understand why now as an adult, more a t- child might think that because I know as a kid, when I was bad, like it was always in the back of my mind that I have like slightly destroyed the family union. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, the- I have, I have caused problems with this family that are break that are causing cracks in the whole unit. And uh, if the parents separate, I could see why you're like, fuck, I fucked up too many times. Yeah. I shattered this whole relationship. No, yeah, there were definitely moments where I realized that something I did was bad enough. I mean, I never killed anybody or anything, but something I'd done was bad enough that it had actually damaged the integrity of the family for that moment. That everyone was so <laughs> upset about what had gone on. It was right. Like, fuck, what did I do? You know, and I, I think it's very uh, normal kid reaction that I'll be better, blah, blah, blah. I, I remember talking to one friend of mine in particular, obviously I won't name, but I remember them telling me that his parents divorced when he was 10 or 11, and his behavior had nothing to do with it, and not loving him had nothing to do with it, but disputes over how they were going to raise him had something to do with it. And he didn't realize that as a kid, but he found out as an adult from his father that arguments over stuff related to his upbringing were, were part of what had caused the fracture that had caused his parents to divorce. And that was real difficult to process. It's like, I know that I didn't do anything wrong and it wasn't to my fault, but I also know if I hadn't existed and been there, it may not have been the reason that they split up. You know, it's just fucked up. That is fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan, did you like uh, Ben Savage's acting when he's trying to tell him like he'll do better and stuff? Dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> I like think the weight of the scene carried it enough, though, for it to work. Yeah. No, like no, it. It, it worked, and, and they pulled it off, but it was like a... 
you could see this gradual like decrease in like the feelings scale of this, right? Like the kids were just kind of like, oh, okay, we need to have a talk, kind of like curious, right? And then it was like, all right, well, me and your mom are getting a trial separation. And then it was like, it was Brian pissed off and expressing his his rage and upset and anger and, and like lashing out with whatever he was saying, right? And then you get like, right after that, you get little Eric who's like, now he's like in this total like state of like depression and and like sobbing and just so sad thinking that like the weight of all of this came down to him and and it was his choices that made his parents want to split up and like it was really heavy and then you could see and then i think right after that was when brian departed and like went on his own way and it was it was a pretty weird scene though <laughs> i don't know eric listen to me I have to live in the city for a while. Hopefully it won't be for long. No, you don't have to go. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. But look, we'll get to talk every day. I'll be good. I promise. I'll be better. You won't have to go live in the city. I swear to God, I'll be better. Brand too. He promises, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I still don't I still don't even think that like it even really needed to be there. I think the movie could have been fine even without it though. Yeah. I don't dislike it, but I will agree in the sense that I don't think the movie necessarily needed that plot point. I don't think it's a bad plot point. I think it underlines what's happening, but it didn't, I don't, yeah, I, I don't think it had to have been there. Like, I think they could have just said, Hey, like we're working on stuff and we want to, you know, right. we've been fighting a lot lately and we're going to work some shit out, but I don't think they needed to be like, Hey, I'm going to go ahead and stay in the city abandoning you kids. You know, <laughs> yeah. like uh, it was just, I don't know. It, it probably just didn't need to go that far. Well, that was another, that was the one part of it. I guess I thought was weird is like, I get you and your wife are separating, but don't you want to continue to be as near to your kids as possible? Your reaction to this is we're separating. I'm moving and, to LA. Kids. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're separating and I'm moving 25 miles away to like, cause it'll make my commute to work easier. Like, Dude, they only had one more important than that. They only had one car. Where the hell was the oh, mom yeah, going to go? You know? <laughs> yeah. She's got the broken bike. Maybe that's what it is. He's got to leave <laughs> no. the car with her. So he's got to live close enough to work to take the bus. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Oh, maybe we're figuring it out. Yeah. That's something smart for this writer. <laughs> right. She didn't even have the bike because uh, Brian took it all apart to make the booby twap. Well, you better learn bed. to ride it like that. Okay. Yeah. You know what? That's another good point. There is no way my parents wouldn't have noticed that I disassembled my bike. <laughs> And they would have been pissed. <laughs> There's also the scene where like the mom is um, uh, chatting with like a neighbor or her friend or something who had came over and they were like, well, how's Brian taking it? And, and she says, well, he's, sawing all the feet off all the beds right. in the house so there's that he's disassembled like, his bike he sawed all the feet off the beds he's created giant mechanical traps in his bedroom he's wearing his sunglasses to school this oh, kid is on fucking drugs dude this yeah. kid is on drugs so, at he, nine years old here's what's funny about that <laughs> one thing i found out from the supplements there was a, a portion of the subplot between um the younger brother and the younger brother's friend whose name is escaping me but toad Right. When Brian is spending all his time in Monster World, there was a portion of the subplot where they really did think he was using drugs. That was the conclusion they can't come to because the behavior lined up and uh, they didn't couldn't believe he'd been visiting the Monster World. And that got written out. And I almost think it wouldn't have taken more than four or five minutes 
to include that. I think it would have been better. It would have been a better reaction to be like, whoa, this kid's on drugs. <laughs> yeah, then then they could have really blamed the parents' divorce on uh, Brian instead. <laughs> Dude, that's brilliant. You fucking tweaker kid. You ruined our marriage. Jonathan, you just fixed like 10% of this movie. Yeah. Seriously, you could have rewritten it. You let leave in the drug subplot, which they already had, and then have arguments over what to do about Brian be the reason the parents separate. Bam. Yeah, Kirsten oh, was already on. growing pot for a science project. Yeah. So, oh, right. <laughs> you know. You're hanging out with that stoner bitch, haven't you? Yeah, with the sideways hat. That chick. <laughs> that friend Weirdo. of yours. She got you doing this. I learned it from you, Dad. <laughs> yeah, no one will remember that. No. <laughs> Nor will they remember this is your brain on eggs. <laughs> on eggs? <laughs> yes. On drugs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, Rachel Lee Cook I, I, was in those commercials. All right, we're going to take it back in, fellas. So. I want to talk about Phantom Menace. <laughs> we can do that, too. All right. <laughs> so Eric is missing... Now, we kind of find out a few things in this area that Maurice was kind of working for the mafioso monster, Snick, and yes. trying to turn Kevin Arnold into a monster, trying to turn Fred Savage. Yeah, apparently, we haven't seen him yet, but this monster underworld is controlled by a sort of monster godfather who they all call Boy. Yes. And uh, Boy apparently really wants Brian to stay in Monster World, and he's tasked Snick with making sure that happens, and Snick has tasked Maurice with making sure <laughs> that happens. It's kind of a lesson in, um, if you want it done right, you better just do it yourself. Right, there's a lot of, like... Delegating. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> right? It's like the downstream effect has been taken too big of an extreme here, and you're not getting the job done correctly. There may be too many monsters involved. But, yeah. And when uh, Maurice has to go back to Snick to basically say he's he's not going to come live here, and Snick is, does not find that to be acceptable. You know, we almost had him. Uh, he was becoming one of us. Oh, oh, he knows our secrets, Maurice. I'll tell you. You know what? Leave him alone. We'll just leave him alone and... and, and you just don't get it, Maurice. Sometimes Boy gets a little lonely. He wanted to play with him. Why doesn't he just play with himself? <laughs> Why doesn't Boy play with himself? Yeah. <laughs> no, don't get me upset, Snake. You know what happens when I get upset? So Eric is missing. He is kidnapped, but Brian knows exactly where he is. He is in the monster underworld, and he has to assemble a crew. The finest... Crew of rescuers since uh, the Predator, Arnold Schwarzenegger's team. This could have been a scene from a Pokemon movie. <laughs> we gotta go get them all. <laughs> then we're gonna need a team. All right, let's run through the bases real quick. Who do we got? First, we're gonna need a chameleon. Someone who can blend in anywhere. What else? A fast talker. Someone who can bullshit their way out of anything. I got that. This guy's gonna have a lot of surveillance. We're gonna need someone who's good with circuits. Come on. And with those circuits, Ray's is gonna have walls. We're gonna need guys to punch through those walls. What else? Utilities and weapons. Someone who ain't afraid to throw down. Someone to back up every position. Yeah, what else we need? Most importantly, we're gonna need two precision drivers. Guys that don't crack under pressure. Guys that never lose. 
You know we got that. I like that he, you know, he gets Kirsten, who reluctantly agrees to participate. Todd, who puts on his finest beret before making the trip underworld. They really were riding the uh, Frog Brothers from uh, Lost Boys. Lost Boys with that one, yeah. <laughs> Love and, that movie. And fortunately, these kids just happen to be engineers. They're always engineers. Kids in all 80s and 90s movies are engineers. If you were between the ages of 8 and 14 in a movie made between 1985 and 1994, you could make whatever you wanted <laughs> with shit you had laying around the house because somehow the parts were always there. Or maybe, maybe you've got to visit like friendly Mr. Miller's swap meet or something <laughs> and somehow within about five minutes you've got what you need. <laughs> you know, like there's always some convenient way to get it. <laughs> Jonathan, they make some uh, s- sophisticated, fancy light gun, right? Like the the bazooka of flashlights. Okay, real quick, real quick, and then I'm going to defer back to Jonathan. But this is another thing I think kids will will forget. You guys may or may not remember. There was a type of a flashlight. It was real popular, like during the '70s and into the '80s, and they hung around for a while. And it wasn't really a complete flashlight. It was a bulb with a handle and a set of battery terminals. And you had to go to a hardware store or whatever and get these little, they weren't really that little, some of them were pretty fucking heavy, rectangular shaped batteries made by companies like EverReady. And the handle piece would attach to the battery using the terminals and it would turn it into a flashlight. And the idea was you had this flashlight with you all the time and you could connect it to various different types of batteries and it was portable and it was durable and blah, 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 blah. So what they've got there and my, one half step, my my dad had like four or five of these that he'd bought in the 70s that were still milling around our garage when I was a kid. So my brother and I would sometimes play with them. We'd get a battery, we'd put it together. Put it, so I think that's what's supposed to be going on here is they found a bunch of these flashlights laying around. The problem is if you're much younger than I am, you're not going to remember these fucking things even existed. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Steve's flashlight memories. Right. Anyway, Jonathan. No, um, I, the other thing was... Brian told Todd and Kirsten to grab every flashlight that they could find yeah. in their in their house. So these kids go back to the underworld with backpacks full of flashlights plus the like bazooka flashlight that they built, right? With this like big reflecting end on it. And and then when they go underground there, they start like the monsters are like, "Oh shit, like fresh meat, right?" Like these kids got to have something. <laughs> They're just going firing. They, yeah, they're going to go like, what can we steal off this kid to trade it in for crack? <laughs> um, <laughs> I need some so- monster meth. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the kids go in there and like the thing is like the relationship with the common monsters is very unclear to me. Because when Fred Savage first goes in, they're like, cool. They're just like regular people like Maurice. Yeah. He plays games with them. They have fun with them. Yeah. When the kids go in as a group. Kill them all. They just go in there and start blasting. They like, go in there like Trinity and Neo going into the fucking office building in the yeah, first Matrix. Yeah, like kill everyone. It, yeah, just, if it moves, fire at it. <laughs> like. <laughs> like. During, so anyway, they started blasting. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to do the whole time in my Straight head. Blasting. Like, so anyway, I started blasting. <laughs> total, total sunny uh, reference. But yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, would you think that like the monster underworld Lord boy, like put everybody out on alert? Like, hey, these kids are probably going to be coming for this other little shithead here. So don't let him. 
uh, get to me. I you think know? you could be totally right about that, but then the thing that mixes it up for me is that the end when they're successful, and we'll touch on how it happens, but in the end when they're successful, the rest of Monsterville all acts like they're super happy. And it's like, <laughs> if you knew that he was only here for kid, and if all of you were just as, or boy, sorry, if you knew he was only here for boy, and all of you were just as happy for boy to be dead, then why would any of them turn up to defend him? Yeah. You just let him go do it. In fact, it's the best possible case scenario, because even if he fails, what's boy going to do about it? You're not the one that tried to kill him. Like Either way, you win. Either this kid marches in there and kills this dude for you, or he fails and things go back to normal. So just leave him alone. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> Boy was uh, something that, like, was a terrifying prospect for me as a kid. I, You know, in this one, this viewing now, and it's the first time in probably four or five years I've really watched it, I, I, I wouldn't say terrifying, but I found a new presence for that character. I like him. There's something kind of gross and disturbing about him. The, the idea that he's this, this monster hiding behind human skin, you know, it's kind of like Leatherface putting the masks on. It's like, like he's... He, he acknowledges that he's a monster and he wants to be a monster, but he also wants to keep some connection back to the hum- humanity that he had before he was a monster. He's like the monster man. He's got the skin stretched all over him. And there's areas on his hands and the back of his head where it's coming apart. You can see the monster underneath. And I think that's kind of cool. I like it. So just to kind of like align what you're saying, what I got from him was this like... Um, to build his character up a little bit. Do you remember, I don't know if either of you guys watched uh, American Horror Story Freak Show, but do you remember yeah. Dandy? Like, I, his psychopathic, like, weird, like, mindset of, like, a man-child with the toys and this and that. Mm. Like, this is what I get from Boy yeah. in this character. Like, his, not, not necessarily the looks, obviously, because right. it's totally different, but the, like, grown adult version of child a child monster. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, this psychopathic murderous person uh, is it. I, I feel like that could have been that character. I agree with like, you. Dandy and boy could have been totally the same. Yeah. I think this is just a slightly less hardcore approach. Yeah. yeah. You guys ever see the movie, the toy? With oh, the one, Pryor? Yeah. Yeah. You know the kid from the toy? Right. If he went down to Monster World, he would become this guy, boy. Oh, dude. Can you imagine what would happen to, uh, I guess I can you say PC because no one will know what the fuck I mean. You imagine what would happen to PC down there? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so boy is like a creepy doll man. And he has, like, creepy doll music playing in his lair. Yeah. And he's got killer toys, like, in the movie Toys. Right, yes! <laughs> I love that movie. I wish we could do another pot on it. <laughs> he has militarized tanks. Uh, he has the kids captured. And, uh, you know, they kind of have, like, a face-off with him, right? But they shine a light in his face, Steve. Yeah. What does that do? It burns off the layer of, of people skin that he's wearing as a mask, and it exposes part of the monster face underneath. <laughs> Which this is this is like my favorite part as a kid now especially as an adult like it's my favorite part it's like they're they clearly were trying not to make this too grotesque and frightening because it's ultimately a movie for like preteens but it was it was pretty grotesque in its own right it's very gross looking and scary he's like fish monster human and he's still got part of the peeled burnt away skin on his face from the man mask he's been wearing and 
I liked that. That just underlines that this, like, he's, he's pretty fucked up being. Pretty pretty messy, psychologically weird, very, very monstery type person. Yeah. He looks like Krang. He does look a little like Krang! Dude! Dude! The whole time, up until ten seconds ago, I was thinking to myself, there's a comic book character or a cartoon character that the face reminds me of, and I wish I could add it to my comment, mm. but I can't think of what it is, and it's Krang. It's Crane. Snick could be the uh, the transporter for uh, Crane. What, what was his name? Where yeah. he like sat in his gut? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, the big dude with the tiny head yeah. and the suspenders. Yeah. What was that character's name? I love that character. <laughs> Fuck yes, absolutely. Brian <laughs> Stevenson, the real boy wonder. What a pleasure it is to finally make your acquaintance. Where's Eric? And you brought some little playmates along with you. How nice. Are they as tactful and fleet-footed as yourself? I dare say they don't look it. I want my brother! Now, Brian, what sort of a greeting is that? After all, we are so much alike. If you stay, you'll be the one in charge Perhaps this whole world in time. You'll be the one with the power, the authority. Not your parents, not your teachers. You. <laughs> so when he captures the kids, he like tosses them into like plushy dungeon. Yeah, I think that's the pit where they've been keeping all the stuff they steal from the real world. Okay. Yeah, this is just like the stuff pit. I was thinking like, I was like, this is not like that bad. Right. right? Like just to be down here. But then I remembered he's just keeping them in there so that they'll turn to monsters later. And, and the, it's a little bit trash compactor from New Hope. Okay. The way yeah. they deal with yeah. all of it. Yeah. <laughs> they science the shit out of that situation. Right. <laughs> they do. They create light from pencils. <laughs> Jonathan Ugh. could do this, I'm sure, because he's an engineer. This is so fucking stupid, dude. <laughs> Graphite's okay. a conductor. Yeah, that, that's exactly what what Kirsten says, right? Yep. So they have the batteries from a flashlight, and they hook it up to these graphite pencils that... Are, flashlight um, batteries with so much voltage, oh, you can't Jesus believe Christ, it. Dude. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and it's not like it was pure graphite, right? Like, there was, it was coated in wood anyway, so... And, and it's metal so, at one end where the eraser is. Yeah, so, I mean, they, that would have been a better conductor than the graphite if they would have just touched the two metal, you know, aluminum ends. But, so they, like, produce this magic electrical line between the two pencils, and it's enough to make... Maurice, who somehow ended up with them in there, revert back into his like non-state. I it guess creates you could call enough it. light to make him poof. Yeah. yeah, and so they shove his clothes underneath the the trap door, and he obviously doesn't have enough light anymore, so he come he poofs back, <laughs> and then and he opens the door like like all of a sudden like why is this guy trying to help these kids out? You know, like his whole scheme is like he was trying to get them down there. Anyways, yeah, fuck so, Maurice. Right, so why all of a sudden he he just has a change of heart? Like he's decided I mean, he no longer wants to be boy's uh, tool for whatever. He's, he's been found and saved. Like what the fuck? He you has know? no un, like no earned character arc. He's just like I don't want to actually do that. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of like in the end, he just, he sees that Kevin might, or Kevin, he sees that Brian might have a chance at winning. He's like, fine, fine, I'll do this thing instead, whatever. I'm playing both sides, so I always come out on top. Right, I had fun with this kid. I feel like that was part of it. I feel like a lot of his motivation was unspokenly selfish. Like, he knew what he was doing was wrong, but he just liked playing with Brian, so he sort of just went along with it. Yeah, he's like, wait a minute, I... These other kids haven't, uh, they haven't had any of the, the meth yet, so they could fucking rat me out, you know? I only have one kid hooked right now, <laughs> so I better save myself. Monster methamphetamines. Yeah. <coughs> so, but we get, we get this next scene where all of a sudden the bully, Ronnie Coleman, a.k.a. Buzz, uh, shows up. And like, I mean, how the hell did he even get well, there? No, they go back to the real world and then come back to the monster world again. Yeah. How did Which I is, miss that? It, it's so fast. It does happen very quickly. They treat it like they can do this within two seconds. And maybe they can, but like, it just feels weird. Like in terms of the climax to go face the boss, right. leave, come back, face him again. And they go get the, the I mean, admittedly, he kind of deserved it. But at the same time, they go to get the kid who they have fed a cat, fi- cat food sandwich and, and a bottle of piss tail. <laughs> Dude, so like, this kid doesn't owe them <laughs> fucking anything. Yeah, I think you you're know? even at like, this point. You should have gone to him before you'd had your revenge. You could have said, yo, you've been picking on me for years. You fucking owe me. But now it's like, no, you made me made me eat cat food and piss. We're even. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's already like five o'clock in the morning. Like, it's not like they're going to get him up out of bed to go do that. Right. Dude, okay, like, this is another thing that kind of bothers me. I forgot to mention before, but real, real quick. How many nights in a row is a 12 year old? Do you think you guys could have been not at home at three in the morning before one of the adults finally noticed? Like, one. Yeah, one. You're, that's the thing. Like you figure, okay, your parents are asleep. Maybe you get away with doing it one night. And nobody wakes up. But more than that, one. Oh, come on, come on. Eventually, one of your parents is going to notice you're not there at three in the morning. Especially a mom that's like filled with anxiety because yes. she just got split up in her divorce. She's probably like checking yeah. on you constantly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, unless she's like you know drowning in like whiskey and like <laughs> like freaking and pills. Uh, yeah, and pills. Yeah, like she's gonna be up all night long, stressed out. Right? Where are you? Fuck yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah. So, but yeah. Oh, but then they come back with like all these like full size car batteries and these light suits. Now this one is actually kind of sort of plausible on the electrical aspect, okay. right? Mythbusters. So, but nine so the, the light suits that these kids were wearing where they, they basically had like 12 volt car lights, like headlights and like, I don't know whose cars they were stealing this from, or they stopped at an auto zone on the way over there or whatever, they went but shopping with the dude from running man. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they like, have all these lights all the way around their bodies, arms, legs, chest, all over. And they have all these car batteries, probably six or eight car batteries, maybe all wired up in parallel. And then you get Ronnie, the funny name it Ronnie Coleman is actually the name of this really like massive bodybuilder also. It's so it's just kind of funny. It's really weird to say it, <laughs> but anyways, so they, they light them up, dude. And they just, fucking destroy boy man like pieces of his face are over <laughs> here parts of his body are over here yeah. and like it and and i thought i i was t- trying to take a lot of notes at the time but i think like you see parts of the body like start to like move around and like isn't he they he reform to- like the t-1000 yeah like they, i like, was like what the fuck that's a temporary kill they get on him and then they yeah. start to like reform and even Snick, the big monster, is like partially reforming and he's blocking the doorway so they can't get out. Right. And Maurice shows up with a fucking flamethrower, like once upon a time in Hollywood, and yeah. murders this man. 
That was all right. That was a bullshit scene, dude. Like you had this scene where they were they totally blew apart boy and you see his his like blackened body parts all over the place, right? And then they go and and just flame flamethrower this other guy and he just like falls into a little like pit. Like, uh, you know, like what a fucking anticlimactic death for this guy. I would have loved to see him like char up and and like actually go through you want to see like indiana jones face melt like death like an actual way that someone would die if they were set on fire like you want to see his flesh melt yeah dude like he could have easily just like saved himself by falling into this like pit and rolling it out stop drop and roll right like i don't know i mean if they're willing to show kids de-skinned and and face masks on this other like monster and like that level of goriness like why would they just they just couldn't handle this guy being on fire like what the hell right i don't know dude it was just really anticlimactic yeah i mean it it wasn't awful for me i i think i can see why they may not have gone to the gory extreme but watching it now from this perspective i would have liked it to see more I, I think one of I don't want to go into too much details. We're gonna have our end cap, but one of one of the big takeaways from this movie for me is is that like it it covered all the bases perfectly well enough for me when I was a kid. And as an adult, my my single really big criticism of it is just that it feels a little underdeveloped and like they didn't go quite all the way with some of these scenes, like to Jonathan's point. And I think that if the studio had taken it more seriously and they'd had more more money and it, it had been treated as a bigger production that we probably would have seen more than that. I really would have liked to see the same degree of effort made with this as they made with Beetlejuice. Cause I think if that had been the case, what we would have ended up with would have been a lot of those really cool big effects. But yeah. I want to add one thing about boy. Hmm. He's played by an actor called Frank Whaley. Oh, Frank Whaley. Who was Brett. Yes. Big brain Brett in Pulp Fiction. That is right. <laughs> Check out the big brain on Brett. <laughs> That guy who gets shot by Jules. He does. His boy. But does he look like a bitch? <laughs> what? <laughs> I said, does he look like a bitch? Say what one more time. <laughs> uh, one more thing. Although the, the, the death scene was pretty anticlimactic, as I said, the flamethrower is pretty fucking awesome. Anytime you can bring a flamethrower in, man, that's really cool. Like I remember like when Corey and I were kids and we used to write stories, there was always an epic weapon that we had and flamethrower was like a pretty popular choice to our stories. That's part of the reason why I can't be that mad at this film. It's like, yeah, I admit there are instances like that where I wish it had been bigger and better and badder, but it was still cool enough. It's like, that was, there's still a 10 year old to me. That's like, that's fine. I like flamethrowers. Yeah. (laughs) Especially from that kid's point of view. Anytime a flamethrower is brought out, it's awesome. And that's really what this movie's for. I think if we're being fair, that's what this movie's for. Absolutely. Uh. So our kids, they, they defeat the monster overlord. The monster mob has been dismantled from the inside. And they just got to get back home. Because if they stay there, they will turn into monsters. So it's kind of just a matter of them like scattering all around the monster world, trying to find an exit. Right? Yeah, they try to go back home home, and they find that the, the sun's already coming up there. And on I, the East Coast. On the East Coast. And I can't even remember anymore what the logistics is. But for, for some reason, even they can't go back up while the sun's up. So they start going progressively farther and farther west through America's Midwest and on to the, the 
southwest and then eventually to California and they managed to make it to Los Angeles just in time to be able to come back to the real world before the sun is up enough to kill them. My, my favorite little funny touch here, and they were clearly doing it just because it was the easiest way to hide the port, the, however the kids were crawling up for real, but they, they had it so that they come up through a portal next to a homeless person or under a homeless person who's sleeping on a beach that's supposed to be in Malibu. Um, and I thought that that was kind of a funny touch. I don't mean to be shitty about homeless people, but, you know, it's supposed to be Malibu. It's supposed to be L.A. And here's this this homeless guy with his bag sleeping on the beach. I also thought it was kind of an amusing twist of the rules because the fact that that dude is sleeping there is apparently a good enough to make it a bed. Right. See, they don't actually come up under a bed. They just come up under a person who's sleeping. Well, he was sleeping <laughs> like on a like a folded up or unfolded cot. Like, yeah, like it was like a thing. like those old school like right. uh, the um, army uh, cot or whatever folding beach chairs. Yeah. Right. Like they're on the every person who had a pool in the right. 80s had one of these chairs yes. where like you'd get up and you'd have a thousand lines on the bottom of your thighs. Mm. You know, like those things. I felt like that's what he was. Laying on, I think and that's why right. there was a little bit of room for them to come out. Right? No, I think you're right about that. So I thought that was that was a real amusing touch. And yeah. uh, there's a moment before Brian comes up where he has his goodbye with with Maurice, and we realize neither of us is going to see each other ever again. And Maurice gives Brian his vest. He's Maurice has had this sort of punk rocker vest emblazoned with with decals and patches and stuff the whole time, and he gives the vest to uh, to Brian on his way up. Uh, kind of an extra note I thought was funny, at least according to the most recent information that they have, that the family has chosen to make public. Some member of the Fred, Fred Savage's family, either he or his parents, still have that vest on display in their home. Um, it was one of the things they kept from, from the production of this movie, so the vest is still out there, which I think is kind of fun. I like that. Yeah, me too. Friends. Well, I guess that's what it's all about, huh? Yeah. I guess. You know what? He was the best friend I've ever had. Well, you're the ugliest friend I ever had. <laughs> Time to move on, bud. I'm gonna miss you, Maurice. Really am. Let's go, Brian. The sun's coming up. There's no way I'm running to Hawaii. But yes, yeah, so that's their shred off. And then Brian climbs up and they find themselves on this beach and they, they find uh, they find a payphone. Today it would be a cell phone, because try to get a kid to find a payphone twenty twenty two. Yeah. They find a payphone, they call Brian's parents, and they have to explain to them that Malibu is in California. But yeah, we're in California, we're in Malibu. I don't know how he knows he's in Malibu. It's like, you were here six hours ago. Did you right. get on a plane? Well, on top of that, the group of them, first of all, crawled up through a porthole that was marked Los Angeles, and then ended up on a beach. And there's miles and miles of beach inside Los Angeles. Malibu's not even part of Los Angeles, legally speaking, but like they... What? They, LA County. I mean, it, is, it is. It's just politically, it's technically not Los Angeles, but whatever, I'm being finicky, I'll admit. 
But even still, like, there's, I don't know how, how would, how would, they, how would a bunch of kids in the Midwest who have never been to California before know that they ended up in Malibu? For all he knows, he's in Santa Monica or, or in Ventura. Like, he's got no idea which beach he landed on. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm at Zuma. Like, you'd fucking know. <laughs> like, um, I'm at Deer Creek, dude. <laughs> exactly. Fucking, like, you know, I know a lot of locals who don't know the names of the beaches around here. There's no way I, I think that kid would, but, uh, mm. But anyway, it's fun. And then the end, the big treat for me is they play, um, they play a, a, a Talking Head song at the end there, which is one of my favorite, one of my favorite bands. It's a great song, so I enjoy that. Hello, mom. I've got Eric. Oh, it's Brian. It's Brian. He's found Eric. Are they all right? Are you all right? Thank God. Hey, well, t- tell them I'm here. Look, Dad's here. Where are they? Where are you? Malibu. They're in Malibu. Malibu? Massachusetts? What the hell is that? What the hell is that? California. California. California? How the hell did they get there? What on earth are you doing there? Um, it's kind of a long story. I kind of mix up the ending of this with the Goonies in my mind because they both end up on a beach. It's true. At the end of the Goonies, they're standing there on the beach. Yeah. Yeah. They escape like the underground and they end up on a beach. And they escape that cove where the pirate ship is. Boy, talk about amazing sets. The I don't even if you despise that movie somehow, that cove set with the pirate ship is fucking cool. Hell yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, uh, yeah. Now they did. You're right. They both do, and then that the movie just kind of ends there. There's no, there's no real uh, <laughs> extension past that. The only other treat you get is the last like 45 seconds of the credits are supposed to be the sound of Maurice eating a bag of chips. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Next, we'll hear the sound of iced tea being stirred. <laughs> right? Riveting content. <sighs> but, uh, but I guess it's the, the Doritos callback. But yeah, that's, that's pretty, much, pretty much the end of the uh, Moverino there. I have a question for you guys. Yes, Four-way deathmatch. Maurice from this movie, Trickster from Brain Scan, <laughs> Drop Dead Fred from Drop Dead Fred, and Beetlejuice from Beetlejuice. Four-way death match, who wins in a fight? It comes down to Trickster and Beetlejuice. The other two are not nearly vicious enough. <laughs> um, not even close. Tr- Trickster is straight up like, yo, go kill people. Go <laughs> kill people. That, that's really his whole thing. I think it comes down to him and Beetlejuice, and I think Beetlejuice would probably win just because he's more clever. Beetlejuice comes out on top? Yeah, I think Beetlejuice beats Trickster in the final match. <laughs> just just barely, but I think he does it. I, I feel like Trickster would like bring Edward Furlong into the mix. Well he might. That like, would be a good one. Like the fight would start and like, you know, Drop Dead Fred would be like turning into a ball, bouncing around. Yeah, exactly. He'd get killed immediately. Maurice would be trying to catch him and right. he'd probably yeah. like eat him. They'd be playing with each other. Absolutely. And they'd both they'd end up killing each other, or one would kill the other and then get killed by one of the others. Yeah, hundred percent. So Maurice eats a drop dead Fred when he's a bouncy ball. <laughs> While Maurice is doing that, Trickster kills Maurice, I bet. Right? Yeah, he's surprised. He pulls a sneaky. He probably like comes up behind him and like squishes yeah, his head. Yeah, crushes his head, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Beetlejuice and Trickster are left. Now, Beetlejuice will probably turn into something. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I think Beetlejuice would... Trickster, I think, is more vicious, but Beetlejuice has got the shift factor and the snake thing, and he could also just warp Trickster to that other world and leave him for one of the sandworms. So That's true. Yeah, he does have <laughs> a lot of power. But I feel like Trickster at that point would like... You know, he got the one sneaky kill. Now he needs Michael. Right. He'd be like, Michael, I need you to kill him. And Michael would be like, Take his foot. it's supposed to be a game! <laughs> and like, they'll be arguing, right? 
<laughs> and then Beetlejuice turns into like a giant snake and like rips Tripster in half or something or or binds him, does the constriction. There's a few movies now. It's a short list. But there's a few movies now that I am sincerely really pleased I got you to watch. And that's one of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think about it a lot. I still like it. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, anyway. Jonathan, yeah. any final thoughts about Little Monsters before ratings? I enjoyed a little bit of the soundtrack for this, but yeah. there I also felt like there were a lot of songs that just, it was, it was one of those weird eighties movies that they put songs in there. that just didn't really fit. Like the musical yeah. part of the, of it just didn't fit for the tone of the movie at the time. And I think that happened like several times during this movie. It I was agree. Just, it was weird, right? Yeah. I, I don't, but although there were some good songs, there were more songs that just didn't fit. And, and as Steve mentioned earlier, also that the talking heads, like you don't get a talking head song in a movie <laughs> oh, very true. often um, at yeah. all, even uh, uh, as much quality music as they have made over the years. Like, you still, even to today, don't get a good Talking Heads song in a no. movie. It's really interesting. They're one of the most critically acclaimed bands of all time. Jonathan Demme, who's a very famous director in his own right, did one of the the most well-rated documentaries ever about David Byrne, who's the head of the band. They're one of the most avant-garde music acts that have ever existed. They were at a certain end of the post-punk move- movement that very few other bands occupied. But you're right. they, Despite all of that, you you, you just do not hear their stuff in film very often. The the only song of theirs that really comes up frequently is Burning Down the House. But other than that, yeah. And and a psycho killer you hear yeah, every killer. once in a while. Yeah. 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 They Which is one song. of my kids' favorite songs, by the way. Yeah. I introduced him to that when he was like four years old. That's so he, fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah, he loves that song. <gasps> they had that song in uh, that movie Downsizing, which was like one of the worst movies I've seen in recent years. It's always unfortunate when I an artistic act such as them of such high quality has their product used in something so garbage. There have also been instances over the years where they've used like Doors commercial or Doors songs and like car commercials. And it's like, you know, Jim Morrison would never have wanted this to happen. Like you people are co-opting these, these songs because they sound a certain way when they're not at all about what you're using them for. <laughs> like, yeah. Anyway, Let's get into ratings. Um, I did want to mention, lastly, real quick. I mentioned we started the special effects designer, Robert Short, also oversaw the effects for Beetlejuice. It's a very Beetlejuice-esque movie. Chris Chris Willman of the Los Angeles Times pointed out the same thing. His review was very heavy in that regard. But yeah, that's pretty much my last thought. So more ratings, whoever's going first. Jonathan, hit us with your rating of Little Monsters. Aye, aye, Captain. (laughs) Um, Okay, so I have some really mixed feelings about this movie. Oh yeah. Okay. So if I'm looking at this movie from a kid's perspective, I enjoyed this movie a lot. It was an adventure. It was fun. You have ups, you have downs, you have pretty much everything a kid would want. Right. And I enjoyed the costumes there were several instances of the puppet use that they could have easily just not done they could have done something else but they put puppets in there like there was one monster with like these long long legs and stuff that was kind of cool 
I enjoyed that aspect of it. They spent a lot of time doing costumes and makeup and prosthetics and stuff like that. Even though some of them looked kind of like really cheesy, like low budget, but I still appreciate that they tried that. But then as an adult, I feel like this movie is totally based on our concept that we talked about earlier of <laughs> like this guy a street level pusher getting kids addicted to drugs <laughs> and getting them totally involved into this whole entire scene or welcome to the life of crime bitch right like slap you in the face you're They'll in put you to work kid but it's also e really easily related to like child trafficking and like you can't watch this movie as a parent or as a sane adult and not think that like, this is fucking weird, dude. Like this is, this is not okay, <laughs> especially to be rated as a PG film. I think they drop the F bomb. They say bitch. They say shit. They say, you know, all the curse words that you could. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know, man, but at the end of the day, I still have nostalgia for this, so it gets some extra points for that. I'm going to give this movie 6 out of 10 peanut butter and onion shit sandwiches <laughs> with a bottle of piss juice. <laughs> That's my rating, and I'm done. I like it. Well done, sir. Well said. I'm going to go next, and I'm going to give this movie a grade rating system, which I like to break out every now and then to be different. Um, I'm going to give this movie a C plus. And the reason is because I liked it as a kid, but I don't think it's a really good movie. Like, a lot of it, I think, doesn't work, and there's better executions of this style of movie where there's, like, a, a kid with a supernatural friend. But I think Beetlejuice, like has the top it's at the top of the mountain but i think i like drop dead fred more than this as well and this might be maybe on the same level as brain scan or maybe i like brain scan more it's kind of hard to say i i grow a, a fondness for brain scan all the time really but yeah I mean, that movie tends to, to inch up on you yeah it does <laughs> but like I like gross-out humor, or at least I did when I was a kid. And right. this movie has a lot of, like, gross-out stuff, like put earwax in someone's sandwich or whatever in their tray. I don't know. They do a lot of dumb shit, but, like, as a film, like, as a movie, like, the way it's structured and the way it's executed, it's not always the best. And I don't think kids would really like this in the modern day. And it's not because it's, like, too offensive for them or too grown-up for them. I don't, th I don't think with that, like angle necessarily i just think it's like not good enough for them uh, there's a lot of quality kid content out there uh, more and more i think as the years go on and i don't think this is up there i don't think it meets the standard there is weird shit in here for sure um, i don't think what kids want oh, any guy i'll say that i think there's some weird shit in here but like it, it's kind of hard to say if like if it's if you're reading into it or not and you know, the drug angle is pretty funny and <laughs> that might be like a metaphor for this especially in like the 80s i don't know but anyway, it's like the Nancy Reagan era of like, you know, just say no. Don't end up like this fucking tweaker. Say no to Maurice, kid. Anyway, it's getting, it's getting a mid-range rating for me. Steve, why don't you take it away? I'm, I'm going to give this movie pretty much in the same vein as Jonathan. I'm going to give this movie a 6 out of 10 adolescent monsters. I definitely don't think it's the best example of a movie of this type, but I also think that that has more to do with the fact that it 
never got treated with enough respect, I guess, to ever get to that point. I think it was a movie everyone wanted to be good, but also just kind of wanted to make and get it out there and making it the best of anything was never a priority for anybody. I do think it ends up being better than a lot of these types of films, especially from the era. I think it, when you look at a lot of the, the, the kid movies where there's a friend involved, a supernatural friend, I'd argue this one is far from being the best, but is also far from being the worst. I think it's it's actually slightly above average. I think the biggest problems with this movie from today's perspective really have more to do with A, it being dated, and B, that kids are just looking for different kinds of material now. In, in a world where they're getting frozen and Encanto and Big Six and a new Pixar movie every 18 months, I don't think kids have any interest in just seeing anything like this at all anymore. But, uh, you know, I could be wrong about that. In any case, I, I, you know, the screenwriters, for what it's worth, ended up not liking it very much because they felt it was different than what they'd, they'd started off being. But I, I think the costuming is mostly very good. It's a little lazy in the corners, but I think it's good when, when you're looking at the center. I think the overall story does a fairly nice job of exploiting the idea of a kid who's trying to find a balance between a life he finds entertaining and dealing with the responsibility that's being presented with him as, as, as an older kid and... Definitely nostalgia plays a huge factor. I also think going back partly to what, what Jonathan said that I, I, I don't think you can fairly grade these movies from the perspective of someone in their 30s, 30 years after the movie was made. I, I think you've got to look at the movie through the lens of someone who was between 10 and 14 in 1989. Otherwise, it just becomes a completely irrelevant point of comparison but uh, that's me. I'd call it. I'd call it a sex. Nice. Yeah. Thank you, Steve, and thank you, yeah. Iceman Chris, for suggesting. Yeah, this thank movie. you. Honestly, I did. Despite everything else, I really enjoyed getting a chance to sit through this movie again. And I saw a lot of really fun bonus material I had not seen before. And so. I'm sorry that it took us so long to get to your request. He's one of the first people that ever requested a movie. Well, request more movies. Like years ago. So <laughs> we are like. We, we've owed him for like two years, something like that, a movie to do. So. Please somebody tell Corey you want to see the first Blade. <laughs> oh, God. With Wesley Snipes, because it's actually better than he thinks it's going to be. I've watched Blade a long time ago. I, I'm i not saying it's going to be way better than you think or remember, but I I do think you'll enjoy it more. Than you than you think. Okay. I think you'll have fun watching it. I'm not going to say you're going to love it, but I think you'll, you'll you will be entertained. And at the end of the day, I think that's 75 percent of what movies are about. I also want to say that we're still looking for a debate challenger for the Great Movie Debate Part Two. Steve is going to face off against someone in a movie debate about Star Wars. I'm going to be better prepared this time. I, 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 I did not take the last one seriously enough. You did pretty good, though. I, I mean, you both did great. But I want to talk about the new topic. It's going to be Star Wars sequels versus prequels. Which one is better? And Steve is going to be arguing oh, on the side sequels. of the Star Wars sequels. So we need someone who is intelligent, well-spoken, comfortable with podcasting. You can talk to me, and we'll see if you're qualified. Can't guarantee you'll be on. I'm going to be as nice as possible, but the moment you start in on midi-chlorians and Jar Jar, I'm going to get real aggressive. It's going to be mean. It's going to be mean. <laughs> I'll rein Steve in so he's not just a jerk the whole time. It will be a civilized debate, I assure right. you, despite what Steve says. <laughs> but we need someone to argue on the prequel side. You need to be intelligent and well-spoken. Like I said, you need to convince us that the prequels 
are better than the sequels. Well, not convince us, but convince whoever's listening to the podcast. Anyway, um, email me, bigdumbmovie at gmail.com, or you can message me, Podcast on Instagram. Also, leave us a positive rating and written review on Apple Podcasts if you're just a listener and you like what you hear. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Give us a thumbs up on YouTube. All of those things. Anything else, Jonathan? Thank you to all the listeners for uh, not, uh, you know, grilling me too much about all of my unfiltered nonsense that just spews out of my mouth during these uh, episodes. Of course, people love you, Jonathan. You crazy? Can I can I plug my podcast on cheese? Yes, it doesn't exist. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh. Mozzarella Steve is what it's called. That's right. (laughs) Cheesy Stevie. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. We love you. And good night.
Holyfield. <laughs> I mean, in those guys, I still though that that's still like one of the biggest letdowns for me in professional sports. Yeah. Know? Because when I was a kid, as a fucking kid, I was how old were we? Nine. Young, little. Young. He, Dude, he, I was, was like, so what, ready for that fight. Or something. Ninety three. Yeah. There. But I boxing mean, was different back then. Like boxing main events were a fucking big deal. Well, th- that oh, was yeah. back when that that literally was like the demise of heavyweights. Like literally, yeah. there has never been another like really good set of heavyweights since Tyson Holyfield that whole yeah, it era lasted like into the mid to late 90s yeah. I, w- I would say Lennox Lunas Jr. was like the last of the big boys and he's really? retired at this point yeah, yeah. And but, but there's never been even with him it was still never the phenomenon no. that, that was that late 80s early 90s era no you're right sure and i think don king had a lot to do with that unfortunately don king also stole like 300 million dollars from mike tyson yeah that guy's a piece of shit yeah he really is and like uh me and i'll sue you right hit me and i'll sue you tyson was the youngest uh boxer in history to hold all three belts at the same time it was it he was if he hadn't gone to jail if if uh Damn it! Now I'm forgetting his name. The trainer. What's his, what was his trainer's name? Oh, um, the guy that was like Mickey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the dude, if he <laughs> had, me, Mick. <laughs> it was like the guy was like Mickey. Mickey if, quoted, right. used direct quotes yes. from that guy yeah. in Rocky Five. If 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 there had been someone to step in immediately and fill the gap when the trainer died, and Tyson hadn't gone off the rails and gone to jail, I'm convinced he would just unilaterally be considered the greatest heavyweight of all time. Aside from maybe maybe Ali when he was big enough to fight at the heavyweight level and Frazier and and uh, uh, Baldy George Foreman. What the, about the, Rocky Marciano? <laughs> Every time <laughs> you talk about boxing, some white boy gonna bring Marciano up Rocky Marciano. Beat Joe Lewis's <laughs> ass. Hey, Joe Lewis's ass. <laughs> Uh, there was also Max Baer Sr. I mean, he was he was a great white heavyweight in the 1930s. You know, <laughs> like. Uh, Speaking of uh, that movie, um, when my son was like three years old, we taught him the um, the spoon uh, <laughs> joke from that movie. When he's like, taste the soup. And he's like, all right, I'll taste the soup. He goes, okay, give me the spoon. <laughs> Aha. Yeah. It's like after like, the credits. Yeah. It's like original MCU after the credits scene. There is a... Uh, like at the end of credits bonus to this film where you get to listen to Maurice eat a bag of chips. Oh, I didn't even know that. Make <laughs> yeah. sure you mention that. Right. By the way, say goodbye to this chair. It's its last day. This one you're sitting in, Steve. This, oh my God. Notice no. that I taped up that thing because it fell off. <laughs> <laughs> we were in the middle of a pod last weekend and this thing just goes flying. flying. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck just happened? So, well, uh, goodbye, Cher. We're replacing it today. So just as an FYI, just kind of... Be careful the tape. The mic will pick it up. These the mics that me and you have are very sensitive. Jonathan's is less so. I had to crank him. Anyway, you had to crank. You me. gave a more sensitive microphone to a loud, obnoxious person. What's wrong with you? Yeah, <laughs> gotta do it. Yeah.